one. What's happening, brother? How are you? Good to be here. Good to have you. Um, I have enjoyed your restaurant many times. This is my favorite steak restaurant in all of Los Angeles. Thank you. uh, It's one of the reasons why I wanted to bring you in here because uh, this is a really crazy time for restaurants. And um, I, I mean, that's basically... That that's the gist of it. This yeah. is a crazy time. I it's mean, it's bananas. It's absolutely crazy. I'm trying to just get a handle on it. It's just uh, overwhelming. So, for me, it's just head down and cook. Try to help people, you know, that are in need, and uh, and then we'll figure it out later. Well, that's, I know you've been doing a lot of cooking for first responders and for hospitals and like. What, what have you been doing with your time now that this is? Well, it really first started where um, basically everything just everybody was just staring at each other and saying, "What what is going on? What's happening?" And I had I didn't lay off any of my employees, and it's all happening. Everybody else is closing up shop, and you know I'm just overwhelmed as a business owner. What am I going to do? And I actually had my GM come up to me, and you know because I'm trying to figure it out. Everybody's asked what's going to happen. My GM came up to me and just says, hey, listen, you know, we're with you. Um, we know you didn't create the coronavirus. You know, you do what you have to do, and we know your heart's in the right place. And I was just like, I just like kind of just let out a breath, and I'm like, okay, well, I appreciate you saying that. And then I was just head down, get down to business with it. And uh, um, we had a cutback, um, 90% of the staff, and uh, we were just like, just cook. Um, didn't know who we're gonna, who's gonna buy it or anything. It was just crazy. So would you just tell everybody? It's the the steakhouse is called APL yeah. and it's in uh, L.A. In what what is that like the theater district? What is that called? That, yeah, it's that in area? the heart of Hollywood, Hollywood yeah. and Vine. Yeah, and it's right uh, next to the Pantages Theater. Which right. we and what's ironic was it was literally when they closed down all the restaurants. It was the going to be the night of uh, Hamilton premiering, which is a big deal for us as a business and. Uh, you know, all of a sudden it's like, it stops. Yeah, uh, we, um, I went to your place right after we saw something. It was, uh, oh, it was Frozen. (laughs) Yeah, okay. (laughs) (laughs) I have daughters. Right. Yeah, we went to see Frozen, and that was the last time I was at your place. Um, It's, it's got to be a very strange thing. This has never happened before. And one of the things that we've talked about uh, a lot on this podcast is what's so devastating about this is, there's a lot of people that have lost, lost businesses in the past because markets changed and because maybe they didn't do what they could have done or work as hard as they could have worked. But for so many small businesses and restaurants and bars, they've been doing the best work they've ever been able to do. They, they're putting in the hours. They're showing up. They're putting out these uh, amazing meals. And then because of nothing that's their fault, it just gets shut off. It just gets shut off. It's crazy. And you know. without any real understanding of how long it's going to take or when when you're going to – I mean, we just had a conversation. I was saying we should just talk about this on air because we were just talking in the green room. Yeah. Like there's no, no clear indication of when you'll be able to go back to work and, and, and serve food to the general public and what that's going to look like. I know. It's, it's, it's the unknown. Um, but – how I'm investing my time, how a lot of other chef restaurateurs are investing their time is trying to serve takeout to the public, but also doing um, charitable and things to provide for, for first line, you know, front line, you know, defense. Yeah. And one of the things is, is you know, Jimmy Kimmel and I teamed up to, um, for every meal that we prepare, we donate a meal to St. Joseph's Center. So that was the first thing, because for our, our attitude was, is like, we want to help people 
and let them know that they're cared about. And then the other thing is to really just keep um, even just the five people working because we didn't even know if people were going to order. So um, we jumped into it like that. And then these services such as uh, uh, Frontline LA, which comes in and um, brings is like the glue between us and the hospitals. And we, we prepare meals for 150 meals at a time for the hospital workers. And do you guys package them up and then have them delivered to the hospital? Yeah, or, exactly. Yeah. I mean, so we'll just sit there. They'll say, hey, we have a need for this particular hospital, you know, um, Hollywood Presbyterian. Okay, great. 150 people. We package up the meals. How do you do that? Do they order off a menu or do you just prepare no, we, stuff that you think that they'll enjoy? We prepare um, healthy things, things that they would appreciate. And then also sometimes I just serve comfort items. So sometimes I'll do meatloaf gravy and mashed potatoes because, you know, if they're just all healthy, sometimes they just need a little bit more of like, you know, warmth and like just mm-hmm. kind of like pulling it. That's a, a weird bit. word, comfort food, you know? It is, but that's what's happening it, it, it now. Makes sense, but it works. Like the comfort, like when you say macaroni and cheese, comfort food. Yeah. It is. That's what people are gravitating towards. That's yeah. where my menu is right now. It's all comfort food and barbecue. Really? Yeah. So do you, do, is that because that's what people are asking for? Well, that's Probably hard my, to cook steaks, right? That, that's my read on the market. You know, I had experienced a similar thing where things shut down and uh, people needed help. And that was around, you know, during 9-11. And, you know our attitude was is like how can we help people those you know those in need and and really comfort food really kind of just blossomed out of that so So when you're doing right so you're doing takeout as well Mm -hmm. and how does that work do they order online or do they call up like how how's that work like we prefer curbside um as opposed to just doing postmates and grubhub you know people can do that and so we'll get people to come deliver yeah let's get to that because how does that work postmates and grubhub is that good for your business is that is it less good than people ordering directly from you like how does that work well it's great for our business because it gives us a greater range and we really can't deliver so it gives us an opportunity so it's a whole nother market but you know they charge a back-end fee on it so we have to up charge it a bit and you know for us we'd prefer just to kind of sell directly to the customer curbside which we're doing a good clip up to it's probably about half and half so like what if you had a guess like what's the capacity is as part is like for your business is like full on wide open where people can come and sit down versus now like how much is it deteriorated oh it's it's maybe 10 15 percent of the business compared to yeah and so that's why i'm just focusing on like i just got to keep moving that's how i'm emotionally getting through this thing and also keeping the business going is just basically just cook for people that are in need you know focus on the hospitals and then and the neighborhood just right around us. So it's a tough spot. And you have, obviously, you have a lot of friends that are in the restaurant business. Oh, yes. And so what is... We talk all the time. What's the general th- feeling? Like, what is, uh, what's the, the, the temperature? Like, how, how's everybody dealing with this? You know, first of all, knowing that a good number of us are not going to be around um, because just even figuring out all the rules and the laws that are going to happen around this thing or, or unfolding. They're just very hard to read and get a clear understanding of what's happening. So a lot of people just don't know the unknown. Um, you know, landlords, you know, we're deferring rent, but at the same time, you know, they're not accepting of that. So we're like on the hook and we don't even really know where we're going to end up with it. Even just the PPP loans, um, uh, 
only. What is PPP? It's the Paycheck Protection Program, and that's really a government-funded um, assistance to supply restaurants and all businesses. I think of all the loans given out, I think only 5% of all the loans given out were actually to restaurants. So um, they, get, they give you a chunk of money, essentially, that covers eight weeks of payroll and also a portion of that for... Uh, 20, that's 75% has to be spent on payroll, covers for eight weeks. And then the other 25% is for rent and utilities. So it's like an eight-week li- lifeline. So, And so far, how long has it been now? We're looking at like six weeks of lockdown so far or something like that? Like It what? feels like longer. It's got to be a little bit longer. Like for me, mm-hmm. it feels... It, it probably is that. I don't even have a, a concept of time. I'm working so hard. It's just me and four other people, and two are in the front, and two are with me in the kitchen. We're doing dishes. We're c- cooking. We're cleaning. We're doing everything. I mean, it's a great sense of you know what you know accomplishment. And like I got a uh, an email from a nurse thanking us for the healthy meal that we prepared for them, and that makes it worth it. But you know. Uh, like for me, I'm actually like inspired and just kicking it into high gear. I'm not going to like just waller in it. I'm just going to keep working, head down, do what I do, and just hope at the end of the day. At the end of the day, people have to eat. So the world's going to be different, you know, probably not going to be the same at all in terms of for my business. But what what choice do I have? Right. You want one of these, man? So, yeah, sure. Kill Cliff CBD drink. Delicious. Oh, yeah. There you go. Nice. Sorry for people listening to me slurp. I like that. Um, so when you're operating at 10% capacity, obviously this is not sustainable. 10% of your business is not sustainable. That's right. Just because operating costs and all the above. And then you're you're obviously in a very high-profile area, which must be extraordinary rent, yeah. too. Um, we're just not paying the rent. You know, We're just pushing it off. We can't. We don't have the money for it. So we'll have to work it out. You that's look right. very stressed out. I don't see. I've never seen you like this. Every time I've seen you, <laughs> just you're all, like, that's relax. you right there with a big yeah. smile. All right. Whenever I see you at your restaurant, it's always smiling. I, I found out about your restaurant online. I don't online. have the answers. You know, it's just, it's crazy. I found out about your restaurant online. I was just googling new places to go for dinner, and uh, I don't know. It was like maybe a couple of years ago, and uh, I was googling steakhouses, and then I saw that you specialize in dry age steaks. And I, I had a steak that you cooked once that was more than a year mm-hmm. dry age, which yep. is so it yeah. it was delicious, yep. but it was really weird. I mean, it's it, weird. It doesn't it's taste different. Anything like a regular steak, yep. it tastes like um, boy, it's like a different animal. Yep. It's like you're eating something, you know, some exotic animal. And I, that's what I like to do. I mean, you know, more age doesn't necessarily mean better, mm-hmm. but you know. It's just different, and that's you know for me as a chef, you know I call my dry age room an environmental chamber. I think that's uh, yeah. There's a picture on Instagram of me and uh, Adam in the the basement that fucking meat locker, weird meat room <laughs> yeah. that you've got, and um, it's it's for people that have never been to a dry aging room. It's very odd. There's fans blown around. Everything's a very specific temperature. You got all these different things labeled as far as like what date it was put in there. And for no one, for people who haven't seen dry aging, it's very odd too because you're like, hey, what is wrong with that meat? Yeah, exactly. Like the outside crust of it. You got the, here's a photo of it. Folks, you can see it in the background of the. Um, it's not working. We got a technical. There it is. So 
for folks you can see it in the background, the meat has like a black crust to it. And then you slice that crust off. What do you do with the crust? Get rid of it. But is it edible? Mm, it's not enjoyable. I what mean, about for dogs? I wouldn't give something a dog I wouldn't eat myself. So, wow. You, you know. eat dog food? What's that? Do you eat dog food? No. <laughs> but you feed your dog dog food? I don't have a dog. I wish I did, okay. to be honest with you. But... I have a dog, and he eats dog food. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I love him to death. But he eats. Uh, he actually eats ground elk. But mixed in with uh, regular dog food. Even that, I mean, it gets a white ash, which is almost like a, I call it a, there's a friendly oxidation I referred to it in the whole process, okay? Is that white ash like the same as you get on outside of salami? It's like that. It's part of it. There, It's a mold. Mm -hmm. And um, the whole concept behind dry aging, it's based on three things. It's um, air velocity, temperature, and um, humidity. Air velocity. Yes. Mm. And it's really important. I, I like to, you know... When I teach people about dry aging, it's like if you were on a beach in Jamaica and there was no wind and you just start getting sweat and you're just uncomfortable. Um, but then if trade winds went through, it would have at the same temperature would evaporate the water off your skin. Mm -hmm. So what we're trying to do is we're trying to at the right ratio evaporate the water off the surface so it doesn't get like a smelly, stinky, bad mold mm -hmm. and um, dehydrate it slowly, what it does is it concentrates the flavor, it transforms the amino acids into a whole different compound and changes the flavor altogether. And then also enzymes within the meat through the pro process of rigor mortis. It breaks down so it becomes more tender. So you get flavor enhancement, you get tenderization, and it just it just blows it away. So what does it do to the amino acids? It transforms it into a whole nother compound. It's like a flavor. It's it's like uh, when we talk. Have you ever heard of like concept of like Maillard reaction? Yes, but I don't know what it means anymore. I've, I've well, heard the expression, but I forgot what it means. Yeah, the Maillard reaction is basically like when you're cooking something. Um, what ends up happening? Spell it. Um, God, I'm the worst. Spell is it Maillard? No, M A I L L A R D. Right, my, okay. my lard. Okay, my, my lard. Okay, I said my lard. Okay, yeah. um, that's what I know as. Um, so, you know, whenever you're browning or you're doing different things at different rates, amino acids transform into different things, and you get different flavor compounds, and that's really what happens, you know, with meat. You know, so if I dry age, you have to handle dry age meat a lot differently. You can't go out and say, okay, I'm going to slow cook this once it's dry age, because then that just it develops a really nasty kind of like funky flavor but if you cook it under high heat like really aggressive like that's why you have steakhouse broilers there's something about that browning of that dry aged meat that transforms that just like awakens your senses you know? that's interesting so you don't slow cook dry aged meat no i don't it gets hmm. livery it's almost like a livery so if like, really yeah i don't even if anybody wants dry age above medium i try to talk about i'll cook it any way you want but if you start cooking past medium it's almost like you know uh seeing someone like transform like it, it just ages like when you cook it a long time it just ages and just turns into something else it's just it's those just people nasty. who want well done steak are offensive you should go and eat <laughs> burger king you monsters what's wrong with you when i hear when i go to dinner with someone they order well done steak i just cringe I'm like who am i eating yeah some, it's a cultural thing i noticed with some people like they just want to cook but if, if they want a well-done steak then i recommend the wet age steak to do well done because you know at least mm -hmm. you know you have a fighting chance for some type of flavor that would but be appealing. it's weird like why are you eating steak yeah yep you know it's true
Like, it's true. It's just that's for me, you know. I, for I, everybody, yeah. <laughs> it's a criminal. It's yeah. a criminal act. You're wasting a piece it's of meat. It's true. I kind of like. I kind of look the other way. I mean, it's, yeah. it's, what do you it's, want? Catch up with that? Yeah, it's it's painful for me. Yeah, you know, it's painful. I mean, some people grew up eating well done steak, and that's how they like it. Joey Diaz eats medium well. Medium well. I'm like, what are you doing? <laughs> Why? It just doesn't taste as good. Mm-mm. And it's also, there's an art to the perfect temperature, right? What's the perfect internal temperature of a medium rare steak? Like, what should it be, like 135 or something? No, it's, it's a bit less. But it's not necessarily the temperature. It's kind of like how you get there. Okay, mm. let me explain that to you. So okay. I have this method where, particularly for thicker steaks, where I'll cook it, I start the cooking, and then I get it to about 100 and five degrees, and then I allow it to rest at 105. And what ends up happening is, is I call the method just like tempering of the meat, and it basically, it starts transmitting the, the temperature in towards the center, and then I put it back in again, and then it'll, it'll, it'll heat up. The temperature, if you like take it, I would say for medium rare, even though like on many logs we'll say, okay, 120, 125 is rare, but it's not, you know, for me, if you're going to do that method, um, a solid medium rare will be about 120. Really? Yeah. So why do they think 120 is rare? Like, I don't really understand it exactly. You know, they'll get there. I think they're overshooting it um, huh. particularly. For me, it's not rare. Like rare is, is, is 110 using the method that I use. Now, different people have different methods, which is really what's fascinating about cooking meat. Um, I ate at, uh, a couple times I've eaten at uh, Bazaar Meats mm-hmm. in Vegas, mm-hmm. which is a fantastic restaurant. Yes, fantastic. My, amazing my, chef, Jose yeah. Andres, amazing. It's an amazing place, too. When you walk in there, it's just visually it's really interesting because they, they have these grills with live logs. Mm-hmm. I mean, they take, not live, obviously, yeah. but they take logs they're yeah. cooking all over fire yeah. and they have these grates these grill grates that rise and and lower and um it, you know you could see how they're doing it when you walk in the door like as you're walking to your table you're passing by yeah. and this method of this idea of cooking over uh logs like cooking over fire some people prefer that and then some people like those crazy broilers where they're gas but the broiler it's on top and you slide the steak in and it's lowering down exactly like what is the is there a difference and why it really comes down to um what your taste preference is okay for me like where i'm at right now dry age without any type of smoke or wood is more preferable because i really want to taste the dry age when you start getting into the wood fire cooking and you're burning um uh, logs that aren't burnt out i like to cook basically my wood down to charcoal like to ash um so that it's cleaner okay so then you really taste the meat when you start you know burning on unburnt fuel, you know, the logs themselves, it has like these creosotes and different flavor compounds that will get on the meat. And it's just, it kind of just like coats your palate. So for dry, I like that for more wet age beef. Okay. But for the dry age, I really like cleaner. I like the steakhouse broiler. I like using a plancha, you know, and that's just like a heated piece of steel. It's like, you can do that in your home with a cast iron. On a skillet. It's called a plancha? Plancha. You know, it's just kind of like this flat sheet of steel. Mm-hmm. And, uh, it's all about crust development and surface contact. So like, I like to cut the steaks on a saw. So it's a perfect line and it's all about contact, direct with the surface. It's about the browning of the meat. 
You know, if you're going to get in there and you're going to cook over um, live wood like that, he's doing it obviously right because he's amazing. But, you know, when you raise and lower the shelf, like I was saying, how I rest it, mm -hmm. like you can start on the higher, higher level of the heat and then you bring it up higher, um, the actual grill higher, and it's actually resting while still getting like the tickle of, of heat up there. The tickle of heat. Yeah, so I imagine, like, so the flames won't actually touch the meat. It kind of tickles it. So it's kind of like, it kind of wisps at the bottom of the meat. And so the way he's doing it at Bizarre Meats, he's using wet-aged steaks. Because mm -hmm. that's how you would cook over over that kind of... I don't know if he's doing it. That's my personal mm -hmm. preference. I mean, I think he does people... do some aging. It does do some aging, I believe, over there, so... I mean, but it's it's just I've watched YouTube videos and how to cook the perfect steak. You can watch three different videos from three different chefs, and there's three different methods. And like, well, same thing about dry yeah. aging, though. I mean, all dry aging is not created equal. I call it an environmental chamber. So think about it like making cheese in France. You say, hey, I order goat cheese, and you think you'd get one type of goat cheese across the line. I'm creating an environment just like a cheesemaker. Okay, that's unique to my own. I actually have the culture from like 15, 16 years ago. That I've traveled with. You hold know, on. Put, hold on. You put culture. So yeah, yeah I've I've like a method. I basically take meat that has been aged, and I bring those spores, if you will, from that aging meat because you know there's a mold on it. It's a friendly mold, and it's a friendly mold. Yeah, I like it. I don't want to like. <laughs> I don't want to like you know turn people off to it because right. this has been. I didn't know that you brought your own mold. Yeah, so I, I just figured you just let it dry age. It's not as it's not as simple as that. Ah. For me, like it's each environment. Again, so I get away from like someone can turn around and say, like my dry age is incredibly clean at a hundred hundred days, one hundred twenty days, um, because I get there slowly. Um, my temperature is very low. I like to you know dry age at thirty two to thirty five degrees. I like a high humidity, so I don't dehydrate the meat too soon. I like eighty five percent, sometimes a little bit lower if I want to pull. It really depends, you know. So and when you lots say, of fans. So when you say the cult, like how are you bringing this culture in, and how do you get it to interact with the meat? I basically take um, I take pieces from the previous you know dry age room, and I bring it. To that, and so I put it up by the fan, and it will circulate spores. You put it by the fan, like yeah. how, how do you do that? Well, there's um, a fan in in a, in a cooler, uh -huh. and uh, it's blowing around. It's like blowing the so it'll blow the the spores around the room. So my dry age has a unique flavor. You might try, you know, some great guys who are like master purveyors in the Bronx, which is these guys are like my heroes. You know, they taught me practically dry aging. Um, they have their own flavor. So their dry age tastes different. You know, Pat Lafrida is another New York guy does amazing dry aged beef as well. You know, his has a different flavor. So, you know, for me, that's why I take a lot of pride, even though it's not the most cost effective thing to carry, you know, hundred thousand dollars in inventory. But it gives me a unique flavor profile that is my unique selling point for my restaurant. So you have these pieces. So like those steaks that we saw in that photograph, you would take one of those dry-aged steaks when it's ready, and then you would trim the pieces off. Then you'd use those pieces, those darkened pieces, yeah. which just has the spores on it. And that would – how do you know how much to put in there? I put as much as I can. You know, I'm really – I don't want it too, like, clean, clean in there. I want it to be an environment. So it's like a cave, um, and uh, you know, I'll put a couple of trays in, and then I, I'm very tactile. So I'll, I'll touch the meat, and I'll, I'll feel it, and you know, I'll taste it. I'll see where we're at. I'm always cutting into a steak, 
it's like a lot like... When you say you taste it, like you cook it? Yeah, like I'll cut off a piece of like, how are we looking at 30 days? How are we looking at 50 days? So each room is different because, um, you know, I had a uh, dry room in Vegas and we had, you know, ceilings that were 30, 35 feet, a lot of circulating air. It was just, it was just like, had a different flavor profile. We were able to age 150 days and that was like our sweet spot, okay? And then here in, in Hollywood... It's a lot less. I have a lower ceiling. It it circulates differently. It's just you have to really kind of taste. It's not just like, hey, I have dry age. Or you go mm -hmm. to the supermarket. It's like, oh, you sell dry age? Okay, great. I'll take it. And if you think that's what it tastes like, it's a good indicator of what it is. But if you really want to get, you know, like down to it, you know, each dry age can taste a lot different. That's so that, – that's really weird. So it's – it's very experimental in a lot of ways. It's constantly moving. I, How long I, did it take you to dial it in? Well, when I first did it, it was really by mistake, particularly the extended age, because we just weren't selling the meat. So I had a couple of a lot of pieces like like left, you know, back for a long time, and you know, I was like, I take a cut into it and I taste, it, and it's like, whoa! I mean, this is incredible. And I was talking to the old school guys who dry age, like, oh, you're wasting your money. Nobody wants steak over 42 days, you know, it's just dehydrating, whatever. I was like, no, I think we're onto something. You know, there's a, there's a big difference here in the flavor. And as, you know, we would see like a huge difference, a jump in flavor and like good quality, not like the funky stuff, like the, the full year, that like that's another level. That's it's very good though. You it's, say funky and I want to, I just want to clarify to people, it is delicious. Yeah, it is delicious. But it's unusual. It's like yeah. you're eating something from Africa, like some <laughs> unusual kudu meat or something it's like true. that, some strange game. Yeah. It's got and a, you only want to, you don't want to eat too much. Like people want like a whole steak. I'm like, no, you just want two slices of it. Savor it like a fine wine understand it, get to know it, but don't like hunker down on it. How That's, come you don't want people to hunker down on it? Because sometimes too much of a good thing is not good, okay? And I say the same thing also for, for the Japanese Wagyu, like, oh, you see all that fat and the marbleization. It's incredibly rich, and if you eat it like a Westerner, it's not right. It's just, it's too much. So certain steaks, certain types of beef, you should be eating only a small amount and appreciating it. Anything more, like, you just, it's just, I don't know, it gets me, it's its too much for me. When did people start dry aging a year? Like, when, when did this really, because this is not something, I mean, obviously, I know nothing about restaurants, yeah. other than that they're great. <laughs> but, yeah. they're, but when I had heard about dry aging, I would hear, like, 30 days dry age, 60 yeah. days dry age. I never heard of a year. Like, is this a new thing? Um, you know, they were doing it in Spain for some time, particularly with the older animals, like the oxen, um, you know, animals that are five years, eight years, 10 years old. And they would age these for long periods of time. I was not aware of this when I started doing it, but they were the first people that I heard about it was doing it while I was doing it. And there was amazing uh, food writer, Jeffrey Steingarten, who just like dialed into me and, uh, we did a tasting with one of my culinary heroes, uh, Harold McGee, um, who wrote the incredible book on food and cooking, which is a scientific manual to all chefs around. Um, he's an amazing guy. And he had put in his book that there's really no difference in flavor when you get to that, that point. And so that later stage. So we cooked three steaks and we cut a cube out of the center of it. And at that point, you know, he says, wait, maybe there is something different. Um, 
I'm not sure. I mean, nowadays you hear more about it because we're chefs. We like to play with things. We like to push the limits on things. But um, not many people want to make the commitment because it's so costly to carry the inventory. And they're scared to actually do it because if you screw it up, you know, you lose all the money. So um, I see more of it now. But back when I was doing it, there really wasn't anybody else pushing the limits, maybe a few people. I don't want to say like I was the only one, but, you know, possibly there could have been a few people, but, you know. So it's, uh, what's what's interesting to me about just cuisine and cooking in general is that I didn't think of it until I watched Bourdain's original show, No Reservations. I didn't think of it as an art form. And then when I watched the show, I was like, look how into cooking this guy is. That's one of the things about people being really passionate about something. It's in, it's incredibly contagious. And his passion for cooking and his, his fascination with different methods that these masters would use and the way he would just, just you could see it, like he was, he was so focused on it and so enthralled by these flavors and these creations that these chefs would make that I realized like, oh, this is an art form. It's just an art form that you eat. But I never thought of it that way. I just thought, oh, that place has delicious food. This place tastes good. And then you go to a really fine restaurant or a yeah. fine steakhouse like your place and you go, oh, these people are, ma they're artists. They're artists. It balances between art and craft. You yes. know, it's it's like there's there's a moment in time when, as chefs, we explore it as art. You know, because you know you're not going in with any boundaries and you're not going in any preconceived notions of what it should be. And that's when cooking is a true art. Most of the time, we're we're doing the the craft part where we figured it out, and then there's a, a regiment of like lining it up to make sure it's consistent. And we pride ourselves in basically that consistency and team gathering around and doing something universal together. But the art form for me is, and maintaining just being curious and inquisitive has just been my bug from the day I decided to be a chef. And for many people like Bourdain and every other um, chef that I know of, that's, that's the key that you know that you'll never learn everything, you know, but, you know, you keep trying and there's, there's just like a sea of information that, you know, that's out there to explore. Yeah, he would take you on these journeys to these like very strange restaurants in France where, you know, they're on the side of a lake and there's like 10 customers and 100 chefs working yeah. and they're they're creating these things like with fillet knives and a grape yeah. and like two <laughs> two or three caviar yeah. eggs yeah. and then they give it to these people and they're in ecstasy. I'm like, "What? This is so different." I I I almost felt embarrassed when I first started talking to him about this like like I it's is it you know what it's like? It's like for me, like I've been a, a lifelong martial artist and I, when, when some people believe ridiculous things about martial arts and then you have to kind of, well, that's not really how it works. You have right. to kind of explain to them and then they see it from my perspective and they're like, oh, you've been doing this your whole life. This is something you're, you're deeply invested in and you're very passionate about and you care very deeply about the, the, the true nature of what martial arts are. Well, that's how cooking is to chefs. It's they're all very similar. I know people don't like to think of martial arts as That's an art form. That's a great analogy. Yeah, but it, they don't like to think of it as an art form because it hurts people. Yeah. Because it's violent yeah. and violence is bad. Right. But it it is an art form. It's just a strange one 
that it's beautiful to the people that appreciate it, that understand how difficult it is to pull something off and how what this incredible dance between these people is. But on the outside, like an ignorant person or a person with a, a very narrow-minded perspective would say, oh, that's not an art. That's violence. That's terrible. Like, was it Meryl Streep that said that? Wasn't it? During what? Yeah, it was. It was. Like, and, and, and martial arts are not the arts. Like, okay, lady, <laughs> settle down. It's but people have their preconceived notions, and I had an embarrassing preconceived notion about food. And I say embarrassing it's a great because analogy, by the way, it is yeah. in in many ways. Yeah. And in com comedy, is similar in that sense as well, because people look at comedy like, oh, they're just telling jokes. So yes, yes, they are telling jokes, but. The process is so labor intensive. There's so much going on. And it's, I think it's like everything. So many things you look at them from the outside, whether it's carpentry or sculpture, you look at it from the outside. And if you have no experience in it, people can dismiss it yep. and they don't think of it as this passionate art form. But now I have a completely different, I mean, I became good friends with Bourdain and, you know, I did a show and hung out with him a bunch of times and, I, I got it then. I'm like, okay, this is a different thing than I, I had this this idea, this narrow-minded idea of what food is. And then you get to meet other chefs and you meet all these people and you're like, these are these like sort of underappreciated artists that are also feeding people. He had that ability. He had that ability yes. to bridge the gap and, and to help people understand. He schooled me once in trying to understand uh, Japanese cuisine. Yeah, you were telling me about that. Yeah, tell, I mean, tell me about what was that like? Well, I was just I was sitting there. We were around the table. I was there with him and Emerald. It was it was it was after an event down in the South Beach Food and Wine, um, and we're all as cooks do. All at the end of an event, you know, we're sitting around and we're just kind of reminiscing on things happening. And he was there. And I was sitting next to him, and someone brought up the concept of you know of Japanese cuisine, and I just said. Yeah, you know, it's it's so simple. Um, and he just says, yes, but it's so complex. And then I just took a step back, and he just began to really school me on it. And he just had the ability just to really communicate food and connection to um, community and culture. And um, and that, for me, was, was a big moment. Like, I just got to really see him as that person directly. I didn't think that sushi was very complex at all. The Japanese food was until I watched Jiro Dreams of Sushi. No, that's it. It's, you you watch that and you go, oh, oh my god! <laughs> I mean, you just look at the fish and it just starts to curl. You know, it's so fresh. Or they slap the clam and it just like curls up. It's like, whoa, that's fresh. And the pride, and the seasonality. And I mean, like what blew me away. I've been to Japan a couple of times. I have this amazing guy. His name is the Tokyo fix, Fixer, Shinji Nohara. All the chefs know him. If you go to Japan... Tokyo Fixer? Yeah, he's known as a Tokyo Fixer. Why is he a fixer? Because he knows all the places on the in the books, off the books. If you wanted to, let's say, just you know, know who like produces the best tuna, he'll get you to the tuna boat and he'll introduce you to the guy, the main guy. But, I mean, these guys who buy the tuna, buy the tuna for example, like... You're seeing them at the market, touching, feeling it. But the best sushi chefs know the actual captains, and they know how they're handling the fish, and they have a relationship that far before the it actually hits the auction. I mean, they're in it. They're they're so committed. I I asked him one day, you know, he was talking about a 
this big tuna auction that they do every year. And I said, why would someone pay a million dollars for tuna? Like, you know, Western, like, how do you make your money back? It's like, no, you know, Japanese, it's, it's, it's considered an, you know, um, an obligation. Um, if you can afford it to actually be able to, even at a loss to your customers, because it's almost a duty to do so. And that for me is profound. And that's why Japanese chefs, I went there and I was just like, <sighs> that the million dollar tuna thing was explained to me by another chef as a dick waving contest. He said, it's essentially you're, you're looking for it's, it's a prestige thing. It's so, a prestige thing. Yeah, like that they'll show that they're spending so much money on this tuna, not because it's worth that. No, oh, it's definitely not. Yeah, but, but because that, that's why it's confusing to people. Because people are like, how's a tuna worth a million dollars? Well, it's not. But, but culturally, yes. deep down inside of them, it's like it's almost their duty to do it. It's not as if, I mean, it's, it's definitely like a, you could look at it as a show-off thing. But, I mean, if you really understand from like Western culture, but in reality there, it's almost like it's a pride thing. Mm. It's not like, hey, look at me. It's really more like, you know, I'm able to provide this for my customers. So it's, it, to me, it's like it's a little bit more beautiful to look at it that way. Right. You know, and, and profound and like even like why I got into making knives for me, it's like, it's everything to do with my trips to Japan was because I wanted to, as a chef to do everything that I can within the cycle of serving the steak on the plate, like up to the point where they cut the meat to, to, you know, to have that control on it. And then ultimately whether they like it or not, that's their business. But at least I did everything that I could, you know, to control it. Cause even just how you cut the meat is, has a different impact on how you would taste it. Yeah, that's one of the interesting things about your place. Like you make the steak knives. So yeah. like when they serve you and they put the the forks and the knife down, they tell you, you know, Adam Perry Lang made this steak knife. Yeah. You're like, oh. And I priced it at nine hundred fifty dollars and one cent. Everybody like, why so much? I was like, it's priced to be a deterrent. You know, it's one cent over the felony threshold. And you what's know, the felony threshold? It's like if you steal something and the value is over $950, it's a felony. So, really? yeah. So, in the state of California. So, from my perspective, like, I don't want to sit there, you know, like, so, you know, people are idiots sometimes. You know, they'll go into the restaurant and they'll just take stuff and they don't realize what goes into it. And I was like, listen, you know, I know I'm going to have a couple of bad apples in there, but the majority of people really are, are good people and they're not going to steal things. But a good majority will take pepper mills and things. I mean, it infuriates us as restaurateurs. Um, so God, that's so gross. Yeah. I never thought of that. Oh, it's terrible. It's terrible. <laughs> like what they'll take, you know, meaningful stuff. Because, you know, you, you really want to, like, do nice things for your customer. Do you catch people taking pepper mills? Um, no, I don't put pepper mills on the table. I won't even expose myself to it. <laughs> <laughs> but for the knife, though, we have caught, like, I have one story. You know, only a few people have attempted and... Um, I basically got to the point of like pressing charges to, to get the guy. And, but instead I said, I found them on, you know, uh, Twitter and I messaged him. I was like, listen, I don't, how do you know who's took your knife? You know, we know everything and we have cameras and we have, you know, who the reservation is under. So we had cameras all over the restaurant. So when we put the knife down, we have a whole system of like knife in knife out. And, uh, this guy had slipped in. I'm not going to mention his name because at the end of the day, he did the right thing. But he had slipped the knife into the baby carriage, into his baby's carriage. Oh, and I'm like, you mother. I said, God. You fucking... so, I, uh, <laughs> so I called him very calmly. And I said, listen, 
I don't think you realize what went into those knives. I make them no response, no response. And I, then I remind it's like, it's a felony and I'm going to give you until six o'clock today to return the knife. And, um, then he realized we were serious. He returned the knife and then, you know, now so we, he returned it personally. Yeah. Oof. Yeah. Yeah. Oof. How awkward. Yeah. I had another guy <laughs> and he returned it and he just like was pissed off. He handed it back and he walked out the door. I'm just Why like, is he yeah. mad at you? Cause he stole something. <laughs> God, I can't that's figure it. It's dealing with the general public. I mean, in a sense, this is a lot like comedy clubs. Like most people are amazing. Yes, and then you get a few knuckleheads they that want to yell it. out things and interrupt the show, and you just try not yeah. to allow it to to penetrate yeah. you to start causing you to not make nice things so your customers enjoy. Right. So you try to like block that out. Yeah, you just try to give like a good experience to yeah. people the best that you can. Yeah, that's the same thing with comedy. You know, you want to make sure that you never have a negative uh, feeling about the audience. But some people do develop that that don't understand. You're, you're, it's, it's almost like if you read every comment on Twitter, you know, most people are nice. Yeah. But it only takes 1%. Like, yeah. I was explaining to my friend uh, Jack, uh, who was on the other day, uh, author Jack Carr, and uh, he read some comments. He goes, now I know why you don't read the comments. I'm like, I told you. I go, listen, you just have to think, if 1% of the people who uh, are on my Instagram page are assholes, just 1%, that's 92,000 assholes. <laughs> it's insane. You have to think of I it know. that way. Like, why would you risk your mental well-being true. and put it in the hand of 92,000 assholes? That, and that's generous. One out of 100 people, if you went into a room and there's 100 people in there, what are the odds that one of those people is going to be a fucking idiot? It's pretty high, yeah. right? Well, you've got to think that way times three or four online because of anonymity, yeah. because of the fact that people are, you know, they don't think they're hurting a person when they say something mean. When they look at a restaurant, it's like, oh, these fucking guys, they don't need this knife. And they just yeah. tuck it. Or this run. will look cool and like yeah. it's almost like there's yeah. an entitlement, you know. Yes. And all oh, this meal was so expensive. Yeah. I'll steal a knife. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they, they, they feel like you are doing great. You've got this really nice restaurant on uh, Vine in Hollywood. Yeah. You must be a baller. Yeah, they don't get it. No. Well, hopefully they'll get it if they hear this. Yeah, well, maybe they probably a guy won't. Out of, listening that you know, actually stole the knife yeah. right now. He's like, motherfucker. Yeah. Well, he we brought me up. We've gotten them back. <laughs> we've gotten back the good majority of them. So, uh, so there's know. a few out there, out in the wild. Few out there, and you could buy them too, right? You can, well, you know what? Like, uh, I have sold it, but. Again, I price it to deter. Right. So because I only have a certain number, you know, I, I made, uh, I think I made uh, like 320 on the first run. And then I just made another 500 with uh, my partner. This He's a master bladesmith, this guy, Casey London. He's just, you know, him and I, like we're head down and we can literally spend 12 to 14 hours just stamping an insignia into the blade. And, you know, days upon days, like thousands of hours of work go into these things. And uh, who else does that? Is there any other chefs that make their own knives? 
Not that I really know of. You got that market cornered. I guess so. <laughs> I guess so. You know. How did you get involved in that? Like, was that something you thought, like, hey, this would be a great additional touch, or were you always fascinated with knife making? Well, I was. I've always been fascinated by knives because you know knives to a chef are an extension of themselves. So you can judge like a chef just basically on how sharp they and how they maintain their knives in terms of what type of quality of output they're actually going to do. It's a sense of pride. It's like, so if you're just a home, someone who has a garden and grows a tomato, you know, but you're going to take that first tomato. You think you're just going to grab any knife from the drawer. You're going to get your sharpest knife and you're going to slice into it. So like everything we do, it's like if you're seriously committed to the craft, it's like you want to make sure your tools are top notch. And for me, I've always, you know, always had a knife in my hand. But when I sold my business in London, um, you know, I wanted to just take some time and I got into this concept of wanting just to go that next step, that next level. Um, and I was fascinated with steel. So I went to the New England School of Metalwork and um, I started, I, first we learned how to make steel from um, from iron and then went through the whole process. How long did that take? Um, they have these great courses, you know, week, two weeks, three weeks at a pop. So, you know, it was about a year um, flying back and forth to Maine to to attend the school. And then that community is is like I remember a restaurant community before um, Food Network got involved. And, you know, it's all about craft and, and sharing information. So you can go to these things called hammer-ins where around the country there'll be an ensemble of maybe like nine to ten, you know, master smiths who will show like, hey, okay, handle making or, you know, um, making a, a dagger or... Um, tempering steel, you know, in a certain way. And, you know, you learn. And uh, I just became fascinated with it. Um, Just to actually just use a power hammer with a 5,000 pound uh, anvil and like thin out steel. And it's just like, it's, it just puts adrenaline through you. It's like physical, like making something and then knowing that you're making something that will last generations if it's maintained. I mean, that's powerful stuff. You want to see something cool on the end of the table? That's a samurai sword from the 1500s. Where, where, where? Yeah, hold on a second. You need to see this. I do need to see this. I'm into this. Oh, my gosh. Can I take a look? Yeah, pull it out. Don't cut anybody. I won't. That's a legit samurai sword. Wow, with papers with, and everything with now, the stingray. Yeah, I don't. Fucking. I don't know whether the scabbard is original, but the steel, the actual steel, is original. I'm sure it's been. Can re-wrapped. you imagine that? Now look at this steel. I mean, this steel is like it's it, 500 years old. That's what's crazy, and that's the profound thing. I mean, there's something about making something that would last like that. I mean, yeah. Oh my God, no, it's amazing. It's an amazing thing to just to have around. And when you pick it up and hold it, it's got weight to it, but it's 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 delicate in the sense that it's it's well thin balanced. and elegant, but yet it's and you see designed. the curve in the blade like mm-hmm. that. And you know what's amazing about this is that when they do the quench, in other words, when they're actually putting the sole of the blade into it, what does that mean? The heat treatment. So, you know, anybody can like pound out and make a shape. Well, not anybody, but pretty much anybody who's handy with you know, making things can make what looks like a blade. But the true soul of the blade comes through the thermal cycle, the heat treatment. Um, that's why, you know, people like, oh, Japanese steel is the best or German steel is the best because 
there's this whole process that is about aligning the molecular structure and the right type of stack and the type of steel that you do, and then hardening it or, or, or softening it. So if you want a softer blade or, you know, that might be more utility and, um, or you want a harder blade, that might be more brittle but can get really razor sharp. That's what determines what the blade is and what it will be. And it's that sole of the blade that, um, like something like this. So this curve is actually produced by the quench. So after you go through this process and you heat it up and you put it into the, the water, it actually, it just bows up and actually creates its curve and evenly too, which is incredible. That's why these guys are, to me, the epitome of like masters, these craftsmen that make knives and blades. Well, there's always the dopest scenes in movies where someone's making a samurai sword when they're about to go out and kill somebody with it. <laughs> this, oh, yeah. this is the thing is the guy goes to the knife master or the, the sword master and he's pounding on it and the, the, the red hot steel and yeah. dunking into the fire. They want, you know, I went, I wanted to get a blade made for me in Japan and I went to this amazing place, Corin Trading in New York. And, um, uh, the owner um, she came to me and she says, well, the knife maker would like to have a picture of you um, while they're making the blade. And uh, at that time, I was just like, whoa, this is this is before I was making it. So he wants metal. to look at you while he's making like, it? Yeah, for some reason. I said, wow, that's pretty profound. You know, I was like, okay. You know, puts your soul, your character into the blade. So so he wants to think of you as he's making the I thing guess for so. you. That's but cool. For me, it was pretty incredible. This is amazing. Yeah, let me get it out of here yeah. before something spills on yeah. it. Yeah, I always I, people take pictures with this, and I'll have you take a picture with it. Yeah. At the end of the. Whoa, 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 whoa. whoa. <laughs> See, that's why. There we go. Let's set right there. You got so much cool stuff around. Too here. much. This fucking death's a mess. I'm cleaning it up <laughs> today. After this podcast, I've decided I got to take uh, Donnell Rawlings' black ash candle off. I love you, Donnell, but I'm not into this smell every day. <laughs> but um. I wanted to get back to something you said earlier. You said the way restaurants were before the Food Network. Yeah. Like, what happened? You know, I think Food Network and, and food shows in general are a great thing. You know, it empowers people to cook, and there's all different levels, and I think it's the, the greatest thing. It also has given us as chefs a platform to do some incredible things, too. But there was a different type of motivation between, between the cook's in the kitchen and a good number of the cooks today. So before, you know, there wasn't celebrity um, involved. So mm. you were there for the reason, for the love, the art of it. Where as nowadays, I'm not gonna say everybody because I cook with and I know there's plenty of people that are very serious about it. It's about, about the craft of putting in the hours, the repetition that doesn't make sense until all of a sudden you're doing something without thinking about it. And that's what it was like really before. Um, we were just, everybody who was in the kitchen was there because they loved cooking, not not for any reason of celebrity or or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. So it, it really, it did change good, you know, patience, like so people, like the the progression would be like, oh, you work as a line cook for three to four years, and then you know you're then you're a sous chef for a number of years, and then you're a chef, and you know there was a progression, and then when the whole thing came along, then it was everybody was like, from culinary school to chef, you know, mm. they wanted to jump right into it. And are do you think there's a significant number of people that are actually getting into cooking to become famous? 
There's something about it, yeah. There's an allure. I mean, it it that it has a it has a thing. I don't know, not the term. Uh, famous is a little bit different. I'd say like notoriety. In other words, mm-hmm. they're like ready to show, like, hey, I can do this. But with cooking, there there's a certain number of hours you just you cannot avoid. You have to put this in. You have to have the knife in the in your hand for thousands and thousands of hours before you really are starting to cook because. It's easy to do a dish, but it's difficult to do a dish and to cook, you know, consistently with all the different things getting thrown at you, like this coronavirus thing. Like, okay, how do you adapt? How are you resilient? You know, how can you bounce back? How do you understand, like, no matter what, I'm going to get this dish up at nine o'clock if that customer wants it at nine o'clock, not anything else. I mean, there's, so the more that you can get in terms of your toolbox, in terms of the use of the knife, I mean... Cooking, I don't think about cooking when I'm doing it. It's just only when I step back and reflect and I want to teach somebody. I say, oh, yeah, I do that. Oh, I didn't notice that. But because all of a sudden your hands start moving and because it's all about heat. So you're like, oh, I have heat on the side of the grill. I know it's not on the grill grates, but I'm going to use it to cook the side of the steak. I'm going to push it up against there. How often do you teach people? Anytime somebody asks. I, I love teaching it. I mean, for me, I love to share my knowledge. And I mean, I'm at a stage where... You know, it, it's like martial arts. So I, I did Aikido for a while. And what was amazing to me was the learning process for the black belt. So you're a white belt basically until you're a black belt pretty much. I know there's a brown belt in there. But, you know, when you're training, you know, by teaching and explaining and slowing down, you get to reinvent, and not reinvent, you get to reacquaint yourself with mm-hmm. something that is so familiar. So that movement might be functional but now you're you're seeing someone else doing it and like it causes you to rethink it so when i'm teaching somebody i'm actually learning yeah that happens that's a big part of uh this process that happens in jujitsu when people start teaching and i've seen i, I i've never taught jujitsu but i've seen it from a lot of my friends that have become teachers all of a sudden their level jumps way up and there's the only thing that could be attributed to is that they're teaching people. So because they're teaching people, they're going over the fine details yeah. that you would ordinarily, you just kind of have it in your head. Like, you know, when you pass the guard, you put your knee here, you put your foot there. It's normal. You do it all the time. But then when you're teaching someone, it solidifies the important points. Exactly. And almost all the great jujitsu practitioners are also great teachers. That's, it's key. Yeah. I totally relate to that correlation, you know, for me. You know, it gets you to really like dial in on the minutia of details and perfect yourself. Well, not perfect you, but strive towards perfection. The craft of cooking. Yeah. Craft of cooking. And again, there's probably a, a dozen or more different styles, right? Like everyone's got their own way to sort of prepare things and do things. There's and- definitely a core. Like you'll have different schools of how you approach things. Like you say, hey, one guy does it this way, one guy does it that mm-hmm. way. But I think the best thing that you can say is that, you know, you know, I like I think about it as like, hey, you have a golf bag and you have all these different irons and woods and all these different things in there. It's like what, you know, the circumstance, the environment is going to dictate how you cook, not mm. say, hey, I'm going to cook that steak and I'm going to use a cast iron pan. It's like, well, I don't have a cast iron pan. So what are you going to do? It's like, well, I'm going to cook and I grill. It's like, you don't have a grill. It's like, Okay. Um, what do I have? It's like, you have this, this, and this. That's, you know, so I only have this shitty, you know, steel pan here and doing like this. And, you know, you take a look at it and you're like, you adapt, you know, I, I guess that's... Is a, shield, a steel pan shitty? No, no, it's great. Okay. <laughs> it's that, like, I'm just saying, like, 
the steel pans are great. Blue steel, you know, I use that all the time in the kitchen. Um, you know, I like cast iron just in terms of the the heat recovery that it has. Um, what does that mean? When you have a cast iron pan, so you you heat it. It's like it's slow to heat up, but then once it gets to that level, if I was to put like a cold steak in it, the cold steak on a different type of pan would bring the temperature of the steel down, and then it has to heat back up, and then by that time water can start to develop like underneath the steak and then it starts boiling or steaming and that's why you can't get a crust. When you put in a steak into a cast iron pan, for example, and you could do a planche or whatever, the rate the rate at which water is repelled is it basically it steams or it goes away from the meat. It's actually and so as a result it then starts the browning, okay? And transforming the flavor rather than it boiling. Because if you tasted a boiled piece of meat versus piece of meat with a crust, you'd say the piece of meat with the crust is a lot better, you know? So there's just something about it. So the cast iron pan is basically when you put the steak in, the temperature is it's not even going to be moved because it's like a freight train. It's just moving, you know, it's going to keep going. But something like a thinner steel pan, if you put something big and cold into it, it's going to drop the temperature of the steel and then it has to recover not only with the steel, but the mass of, let's say, a thick steak. So it's got to compensate. Mm. That's, that's really why. Now, I have a carbon steel pan that I sear steaks on all the time. Most of the time, the way I cook is I use a, a Traeger grill, and I cook it very slow. So I'll do it at 225 degrees, and I do it until I hit an, an internal temperature about 125, and then I sear the outside. That's mm -hmm. been the method that I use. Well, I, I'm going to just share my knowledge with you. So I... You know, with cooking steaks, the term sear doesn't really, um, it's its a misnomer. It, okay. There's only browning because like searing really only can happen when, you know, you have live flesh, so to speak. So it doesn't actually happen like where it sears in or seals in juices. What about like ahi tuna when they sear that? Well, Isn't that, I mean, is it's, that technically it's more, like, more like browning. Um, okay. I, I mean, I'm just... It's just like a it's a terminology. It's thing. a terminology. Okay. It's like keep searing. I'm not not telling you not to think no, like I that. No, I understand but what you're saying. The concept is it's, it's browning. It's not searing. So, um, uh, bring me back on track. Low temperature. Okay. So, yeah. for example, what I would tweak with you is like I would say go to 265. You can have the same results in a quicker period of time mm -hmm. with the same tenderness. Um, that ratio of speed is not going to impact. Um, your product. So at the end of the day, 225, everybody says slow and low, but I'd say a lot of times like a bit hotter and a bit quicker is actually better for the crust development and also for the meat. Because for the tenderness of the meat, let's say you have a thick, like like a brisket, and mm -hmm. it's got all these all this collagen in it, which is tightly wound protein. I think about it as like a sponge that's dehydrated. When you throw it on top of the water, it kind of floats, and then all of a sudden it catches and then soaks up the juice. So when you're putting it in at that lower temperature, you're heating it up, you're causing the protein to squeeze out the liquid, and then if you're doing it at the right ratio, it's drinking the liquid into the collagen to turn into gelatin, which is that unctuous, beautiful mouthfeel that you'll get from a long-cooked piece of meat, mm -hmm. okay? Now, if you get a long-cooked piece of meat, like uh, a really well-done brisket, mm -hmm. what temperature are you cooking that at? Um, depending on the cooker that I'm using, but 265 is my is my like typical dial in. So 265 you don't you ever go lower than that for anything? I can it if I want to get sleep, it depends on my schedule. In other words, like 
I'm going to get relatively the same results, but less crust development from 225, depending on how I handle it. Again, there's like lots of little variables. Mm. So, but um, by 265, I found that for brisket, for example, it's the right ratio of that collagen drinking it up to get the gelatin and also the right crust development. Mm. The, a lot of what I cook is wild game, like yeah. most of it. So, which is a lot leaner yeah. than, um, and so that's why I would go a little bit hotter. Um, try it the next time you got nothing so to lose. Go 265 on okay. it. Okay, and then how do you feel about that method of cooking it slowly and then browning the outside later? Uh, I don't. I'm not a big fan of it because. You know, there's all these different compounds that are full. You know, it's not like, I mean, they call it like a reverse sear. Yeah. That's like the terminology. Right. For me, there's nothing like a crust that is created because what ends up happening is it's like, you know, if you're cooking it slow, all these juices start to get pulled out. Okay. And they disappear. They're like their juice on the bag, you make it into a sauce, or it gets evaporated into the air. The thing about doing that is, is like if you're putting it directly in the pan while it's wet, all those juices are bouncing back and then re-adhering to the meat. Okay, that's flavor. That's flavor you, you would lose normally. Now, the sacrifice is like, sure, you'll get it cooked from end to end perfect. Okay, so it'll be pink to pink. Okay, it's great. Right. But if you go back and, you know, sear it or brown it after, you miss out on all these compounds and it, it's not the same crust. I. I bet you if I gave you a blind taste test using the both methods, you would appreciate the other crust over the reverse here. And this is even with wild game, even with a very lean meat? That's a different story. That's what I cooked, though. Okay. Um, that's a different story. So with the lean meat, um, I would probably say to brown it first and then go slow, the reverse, because there, mm. there is a gentle way of, of like... It's so lean, you want to kind of like slide into home, I kind of say. is like you develop a certain amount of momentum. And for the leaner meats, it's about the rest. So you're cooking it, and then you're taking it out, and then you're allowing that heat momentum to kind of carry over. Now, I gave you a bunch of elk meat. Mm -hmm. How did you cook it? Um, a lot of it just like hot and fast so I can really taste it. You know, I don't mind a bit of a chew. Most people are different. You know, for me... I want to taste the meat. I want to savor like the juices of what that is. And uh, elk's my favorite. Thank you for that. I mean, I'm still, I still have some of it. It's fantastic. I got more. If you want yeah. more, oh, I'll take it. I'm All right. not gonna say no. <laughs> That's the best. Well, I want to try some of the way you cook it. I want, I want to have you cook some of that elk. I'd love to. We, do we got Yeah, we got to make that happen yeah. one of these days. I'd love yeah. to see your method and what the, the difference is. Um, I learned how to do it from Chad Ward. Mm -hmm. He's a world champion barbecue guy. Mm -hmm. uh, Whiskey Bent Barbecue mm -hmm. on uh, Instagram. Whiskey, is it BBQ? Whiskey Bent BBQ, I think. Uh, Chad's a great guy. And uh, I've been with him in camp on several hunting trips where he's cooked for uh, Traeger. Like Traeger will hire him yeah. to come and, and cook for us. And it's incredible. And this that's the method, method yeah. that I learned from him is yeah. that that reverse your method. Yeah, and it's incredible. I mean, you can go to all different chefs and mm -hmm. they'll get to the same place, taking different paths and they'll get there. For me, it's like fishing, you know, it's like, which fly, like, you know, which fly do you choose? Like, fine, you know, whatever the hatch is, but it's oftentimes, it's the fly that you believe in most that is gonna catch the fish. I mean, okay, I'm drawing a terrible analogy here. I know what you're saying, but the confidence that you have in it. Yeah, right? confidence, you're gonna fish it harder, you're gonna believe in it, and you know, you embrace it, and mm -hmm. a lot of that has to do with success in cooking. You know, you have to believe in what you're doing. I, there's some, obviously there's some metrics involved, but a master like that guy, for example, um, 
I can't refute it. At the end of the day, it's fantastic. I get there a different way. You know, maybe there's subtle differences. Maybe mine's better. Maybe it's not. I don't well, I don't care. even think better is the way to That's right. put it. It's exactly. Just, they're they're different. And what what do, what do you prefer? And what do you, how do you feel about sous vide? Um, I think it has its place, but it's not the answer. You know, for me, um, you know, certain types of proteins like shellfish, it's it's a godsend. Shellfish, yes, like what, lobster which, tails or really? shrimp or anything like that, because the protein there it's so delicate, and if you can go slow, like Thomas Keller has a fantastic recipe: butter poaching lobster tails in sous vide, and it just cooks it so that it's super tender. And it's, it's not tough. And then oh, afterwards, so you vacuum seal it you, with the butter? With the butter. Ooh. And some aromatics. I want to cook that right it's now. It's fantastic. That sounds incredible. And then take it out. You can kind of like toast it on the grill lightly or oh. put it in a pan. It's, <laughs> oh. it's something else. <laughs> yeah. Um, my friend Forrest, Forrest Galante, he's a, a biologist. And he goes uh, off of um, Santa Barbara. Mm. He goes out there and... And and catches them, and he gave me. A couple so you've of never them. done it with the butter and the. No, no, never done it. Sous vide. Oh, I'm gonna. Ch- it's gonna change your yeah, life. Yeah, I've only done it um, on a grill. I've only done it when it was delicious. I cooked. He gave me four lobster tails yeah. that he captured himself. Yeah, they were delicious. But I cooked them on a grill. I just followed a, a recipe that I found and with butter and paprika and a couple different things. Yeah, garlic. Next time, put that in a bag, seal it, mm. follow follow the time sequence, take it out, and then kiss it on the grill. You're gonna. You're so gonna be what other th- shellfish is good? Is scallops good? Scallops is good. Good with with sous vide, but you know, for me, scallops. I mean, particularly if they're fresh. I mean, I'd rather kind of just cook them in a pan. Mm-hmm. Um, there's something about that particular the cell structure and the scallop that I want just you know charred in a pan and still just like almost like a bit raw. There's a sweet spot with scallops. Yeah, there's right? such a sweet spot, and and once you cross the line, yeah, it's just, they get tough it's and just weird, terrible. and you kind of ruin it. Yeah, it's terrible. How do you know when they're ready? Um, well, for me, it's a feel. Um, and you know, you want to kind of feel it so that, you know, when you touch it, um, it doesn't feel raw, but it starts to give it a slight spring and then you pull it. And then, like I said earlier, it's like you kind of like slide into home. You let that residual heat and that temperature kind of slow down. A lot of times if you're going a bit fast, you take it and then you have like some cold melted butter, not too cold, still a little bit liquid and you cook it and then you just dunk it right into the butter and it mm. just arrests the cooking and then you have it there and like then the guests come and then all you have to do is just like heat it up a little bit and then it goes oh it's so complicated it's not though <laughs> <laughs> i'm sure but like, i mean it's like you gotta dial it in you know it's it food. depends on what you yeah. want you know the end result so like you know you have guests coming over you want to enjoy your time with them you know you figure out little tricks what you can get away with and what you can do so my friend Tom Papa, who you met earlier, yeah. who's getting tested for COVID yeah. along with you, when he uh, has been in here before, he brings this homemade sourdough bread that's just sensational. And I'm not a bread guy. I don't eat a lot of bread. I eat very little of it, in fact, especially now. But when I eat his, like, my God, it's so good. And he's he keeps saying, I'm getting better every time I do it. I'm like, it's fucking bread. No. How are you getting better? <laughs> no, he's getting better. It's I for real. It. It's crazy. I'm just being an no, asshole. I know. But he's my friend. I'm just <laughs> yeah. fucking around. But- He's, he, it's similar in a lot of ways to your dry aging too, because he has this starter, which is a living thing. Yeah. It's in, you know, his starter is, I don't know how many years old, it's old as fuck though, but he's been using this same starter that he got from somebody else and just, 
it brings soul to it. Yeah. It brings soul to the food. Yeah. You know, for me. And that and that connection that you have to the food is gonna also, you know, make you care about it more while you cook it. And, you know, it's not just a commodity where like, okay, order me sixteen steaks in a box, you know, yeah. and bring it in. I mean, you can push out food like that. There's a place like there's a place for that in this world. Well, what I'm really hoping, really hoping, is that some sort of a rapid test for COVID, not even like the 15-minute one that we came, because I heard something about some saliva test that they're trying to develop that's extremely rapid. That would be amazing if you could just test people right before they come into your restaurant no. and no one has to worry about shit. Yeah. You know? We're gearing up for what it's what the new world is going to be. Yeah. Temperature, you know, everybody gets their temperature taken. You know, but that's not good enough. See, the temperature thing is not good enough because if you're asymptomatic, but you're still spreading it, like why are we pretending? Like yeah, that's avoiding science. We need to find out whether or not people actually have it. This temperature thing is just whether or not you're sick. I know. It doesn't mean you don't have it if your if your temperature is low. It's it's real weird. And that's what's being that's what's going to be mandated on us. I mean, there's a certain series of things that we're yeah. going to have to do, and it's. You know, nobody knows for sure or whatnot, but, uh, you know, who knows? Well, at a certain point in time, I think we really need to make a decision as to whether or not we're just going to allow this to take over our world or whether we're going to do what we can do to protect the sick. You know, if you're in contact with people that have a, a weakened immune system, you're going to have to have a different life than someone who doesn't. If you're a person with a weakened immune system, yeah. you're going to have a different life. If you're an older person, you're going to have to have a different life. But for the vast majority of us, this this we're going to have to give people the freedom to make choices and to, to do what they want to do with their own life and their own health. If you're giving people the freedom to eat terrible food, look, heart attacks are killing people as quickly as anything, mm -hmm. right? Cancer is killing people as quickly as anything. Cigarettes kill a half a million people a year. There's no government mandate that's trying to get people to stop smoking cigarettes. In fact, there's not a single word ever spoken about it in presidential cam campaigns, in governor, governor campaigns, congressional campaigns. No one's out there trying to get people to stop smoking cigarettes. But yet it's killing a half a million people yeah. every year in this country alone. We're so strange. In, uh, and I understand. Cigarettes is a choice. And infectious diseases or not, we're worried about protecting people who uh, have these compromised immune systems. But it's not most people. You know, the, the vast majority of people that are going to get this are not, it's not going to be fatal. We have to figure out how to protect the people that are high risk. But to quarantine the whole country, it just seems like maybe it was a good move to do initially, but we can't sustain that. So now we have to figure out how to move forward. And there's all these protests all over California now. I'm sure you've seen it yeah. in Orange County and in Huntington Beach. And there's counties in Northern California that are like, we're opening up everything. We're going to open up restaurants. We're opening up bars. We're going back to business. Texas is basically back to business. Montana is doing the same. And, you know, they have a, a modified approach to dealing this. And we're going to have to figure it out on the long way. But I just don't want us to lose I, I don't want us to lose any people, but I certainly don't want us to lose restaurants either. I don't want us to lose bars. I don't want us to lose comedy clubs. I don't want us to lose small businesses I mean, that are crippled by this. What is the world even going to look like? I mean, here we are. Like, you yeah. know, you, you talk about a comedy club. Like, how do you even like okay six feet apart and then doesn't make sense. There's a certain energy in the room. Like, what type of world do we have? 
you know, in front of us the way it's slated right now. Right. We don't and even know. What kind of government overreach are we going to have where people are going to come in and police this? You know, like what, I mean, there's no real science to that either, by the way. You know, they have a bunch of people jammed into a room, whether they're six feet apart or not. You're touching things, you're breathing on each other. I mean, I don't, I don't know. I, I think you should allow people to do what they want to do. You know, if it gets to a certain point where we have some sort of a viable cure or a treatment, like there's this, um, what is that stuff called again? This antiviral medication that Dr. Fauci has been, rems- Remdesivir. Yeah, remdesivir, that's how you say it. I mean, boy, we're, we're hoping for that, right? We're hoping that there's some sort of a treatment where it's not a death sentence for people even with immune-compromised systems. So, I mean, I just uh, I feel so bad for people like you and for all the people out there that own these amazing restaurants that it's one of my favorite things to do is to go to a nice restaurant. And it would be... And for me to go to work. <laughs> yes. It would be such a shame if... Because of this, this this pandemic, all that goes away. I mean, and what kind of a buildup are we looking at to try to bring those places back? Yeah, I you know I don't have the answers. You know, for me, um, you what know. can be done if you had a magic wand? What would you do? If someone said, "Adam, fix this," It's difficult for me because, you know, I hear your point, but I have just such great empathy for, you know, people that would get sick just by someone else's negligence. Yeah. And and for me, so that it's a bit of a tussle here because, you know, I want to just, you know, on one hand, you have like an economy that is just tanking and businesses that are going to go out of, you know, business. But then on the other hand, you know, you have people that are defenseless, um, some people that look healthy, fantastic, you know, like a friend, like 45 years old, goes in, then they're on a ventilator, and it's just like, you can't give the answers. Right. I don't know if I'm even prepared to give you a summary on it. I, I, I haven't formulated in my brain the way that I've just been coping, and that's all. I'm just trying to hold on. Um, and, you know, for me, I'm just trying to put faith in the fact that people have to eat, and people like you really want to have restaurants around and in the end, we're going to find our way. And the only way I know to get through this is just to head down and work and be really helpful to people that are in need and be there for the community and feed them. But outside of that, you know, uh, I I don't know. God, like if I had the I, – I don't know how to answer you. Yeah, nobody knows. That's what's crazy. I don't, even it? if I was in control, I mean, you know, because I've – I don't want people to die unnecessarily right, by people's negligence, but on the other hand, uh, I just don't know. Well, it's such an incredibly messy situation with no clear-cut answer because of the fact that you do have these people that are seemingly healthy, 35-year-old people that are getting it and dying, and it doesn't make sense. And then you have, you know, you hear, oh, guy, World War II veteran, 102 years old, beats COVID, yeah. you know? Like, you see that, too. So it's like, what? how do I think about this? Do I think about it like the common cold? Do I think about it like the flu? Do I think about it like some new thing that we, I mean, everyone is unsure. And that's what I makes it so strange. I think the key so is strange. for us to get the vac you know, a vaccine as quick as possible, you know, so that we can get it, you know, um, at least have some type of defense mm -hmm. um, for this. Um, because, and I don't know how long that's going to take people like our 
talking a ridiculous amount of time, but... Well, it takes a long time to develop a vaccine correctly. I mean, they're, they're going through a bunch of trials right now. Um, we've talked about it before. There's several ongoing, including ones with uh, human beings that they're testing the vaccine on. There was a woman in Seattle. She was the first ever uh, person to receive this coronavirus vaccine. They're, they did a story on her and they're monitoring her. You know, what does Because that's the only way for us to be sure. Yes. I mean, because responsibly i mean even just com people coming into the restaurant like don't get me wrong i want the business and i want to have a bar that's bustling i want to have a vibe i want people to be happy mm -hmm. well fed enjoy themselves but you know right not point? be nervous not be nervous someone coughs and everybody freaks out yeah or the servers yeah. have the yeah. mask on so now all of a sudden yeah. we can't have music because people can't hear you right. know the server and there's you know yeah <laughs> Yeah, you, nobody used to give a shit. They would shake hands. It's weird. You see people shake hands in a movie now, and you're like, oh, what are you doing? I know. It's, you get just get twitchy about it. Yeah. You know, so. It happens so quickly, too. That's what's weird. Like, the the whole world shifted so rapidly. And um, people like you are the ones, I mean, obviously, the people that get hit the hardest are the people, A, with the disease, and B, that work with people with the disease, right? The people that are that have the disease, and then the, the first responders and hospital yeah. workers and, and all the different people that work to help those people, they're, they're the most devastated by this. But there are so many small businesses right now that are in this position that you're in where there's so much uncertainty. The key is going to be the rent game. I mean, at the end of the day, um, for a lot of these business, that's the looming factor is is being on on the hook, you know, not not only just to make rent the following month with a compromised, uh, um, you know, 50 percent occupancy. You know, if you can imagine, you know, if you're paying rent for that, you know, you have a model in terms of how much income, you know, someone brought out the 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 possibility of like instead of, you know, forgiving the rent, taking the rent and putting it on the back end of it. So right now. Essentially, the for the three months, you're not you don't need to pay the rent, but you'll be add on three months to the end of your lease. Mm. You know that for me makes sense, but for us to turn around and you know work at you know ten fifteen percent capacity and then all of a sudden get a bill for six figures, say like, okay you owe this. So who's gonna who's gonna fill my shoes? Like so if I can't make it at my location. Who's going to come along and take on that rent anyway? Nobody's going to do it. So they're stuck. We're stuck. What are we going to do? Right. It's almost like the deficit that gets established is insurmountable for someone to come on and start from scratch. Like how much – I mean you started that restaurant how long ago? It's, we have a two-year anniversary and I guess it's in four days. So I must have found out about it right after you opened. Yeah. Um, how – long did it take to prepare to open up that restaurant god if you want to include looking for a space and trying to find the right location it's a couple of years so a couple of years of preparation and then how long does it take to actually develop the space and set it up correctly what was it before you guys were there it was an empty space i mean it was a project you know built from scratch so you know going through just the permitting process in la and just going through everything it you know you have to hire so many consultants and people in between to get things through it's a lot different than new york so i mean for us we were delayed like every project is delayed i mean it took us over a year to build it out um and you know you just like let's open already because each day that passes you know you're losing money and when you do something like this, like, were you working as a chef in another place while you were doing this? No, I was just basically living off of the proceeds from 
the the sale of my business that I had in 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 London and you oh, know and other other projects and you just kind of like as an entrepreneur you know you're just putting it into the restaurant hoping it opens as quick as you can and then you know you kind of then you have your cash flow you know? God that's the the it's fucking beyond. opening up a business like that must be so insanely stressful yeah because you know especially uh, you know not inheriting an existing restaurant like for me it's like wow i really believe in the area i love hollywood and vine it gave gave me like certain activity in the area it gave me like a new york vibe i really love the energy um yeah so i love the historic building it was built in 1923 it was la's first skyscraper you know it was a whole story like as chefs and restaurateurs we, we get romantic about we get connected to, to the story to to what it is and sometimes it overrides the sensibility of um, you know, building it out, but you know, you invest in it and, and you want it to work out and it's, it works out. It's great, but it's a lot of work and it's a long road to get there. That whole area seemed before this, like it was experiencing a resurgence. Like it was like super shady just about 10 years ago. Yeah. Um, a lot of development, you know, I think that over the course of like the past, like within five years and two years, like six billion in development of buildings and hotels. And there's a revitalization project that's taking place on Hollywood Boulevard that's gonna extend the sidewalks and make it almost promenade-like. And, Mm. you know, I think that, you know, if any place in LA should be that kind of place, it should be there. I mean, I saw the revitalization in Times Square, for example, you know, as a kid, like, don't walk down the street and don't go there. And now it's Disney, you know, it's, it's a whole nother world. So. It's so weird there now. Well, now it's, it's so really weird, weird yeah. but before the pandemic, oh, yeah. it was, it's like, it became a mall. It became a mall. It's crazy. <laughs> and you know, it was the dirtiest did, place in all of New York. It was, it was horrible. I've yeah. only been there a couple of times back in the day, back in the nineties before it got cleaned up. But I remember it, it was not a place I wanted to stop. Yeah. 70s and 80s like i remember my dad like sitting down and is like okay you don't walk down the street and you know you always look as if you know you're carrying something you know like you always look like you walk like as if you're carrying a knife or something you know, this is <laughs> this is a 12 13 year old kid you know so <laughs> oh my god what is how do you walk like you're carrying a knife really confident like that you can handle yourself and oh. you know and not you know Look like a victim. <laughs> Remember the thing they would do in the movies where a guy would pretend to have a knife or ha- pretend to have a right, gun right. in his pocket? <laughs> over, a scarf, that? over a scarf. Yeah, yeah, nobody does that anymore. Yeah, right. Like to have the gun in the pocket move? <laughs> that was, that sort of, that went away with quicksand. Yeah. Like people start talking about those things. Yeah. Um, when you first came out here, was that the first place that you opened? Have you, have you had a restaurant in LA before? No, I did, I did a series of pop ups. So for me, you know, um, there was a huge lot by uh, Jimmy Kimmel's show, and I basically took a 5,000-square-foot space and I built it out. I have, you know, a whole barbecue trailer on a tractor trailer, so I have a 1,000-gallon propane tank that was custom-welded by Aaron Franklin in Austin. He's amazing. One of the top, Franklin's top. Barbecue, yeah, that guy? Yeah, oh. top barbecue, top, top fabricator. He's got some great YouTube videos. Oh, he's, he's tremendous. And, you know, aside from, like, the videos in terms of teaching people. He's just a great down-to-earth guy. He's fantastic. Seems like it. Yeah, he's tremendous. So I just created just kind of like a um, an homage to to barbecue, um, to doing it right. I had a little Airstream. I slept in the parking lot, cooking it overnight, served only lunch. You know, everybody got the same thing. So I did that for about four years before I opened up uh, the restaurant. How do you know Jimmy? 
Um, I did a show back in 2008. We hit it off right away. And, uh, you know, after the show, we're like, hey, you want a barbecue? So then we ended up hanging out the weekend and he's into fly fishing. You know, we're into like the same into the same stuff we just became great friends so you actually are into fly fishing so you're talking about it not just as an analogy but... oh i'm obsessed with it really oh where do you obsessed go obsessed with it uh, anywhere and anywhere but a good majority of the places the places that i love in, in idaho um, montana wyoming are you one of those catch and release guys absolutely 100 percent. how weird is that though it's not if you look at it as as just a system and environment you know you know we we talk about this process pr thing is like uh, Fly fishing, like, it's the one thing you can invest your time in and you can do into a very old age. Like, so if you're lifting weights, you know, there's a certain point where, you know, you're just going to, you know, stop. But, like, fly fishing you can really invest your time into. And there's just something about all the different facets of it that are absolutely amazing. So, um, gosh, I got lost my track. I'm thinking about it. <laughs> Well, I did a lot of fly fishing when I was a kid. Oh, really? Yeah. Where, yeah. where did you go? Boston. I mostly did it on ponds and, oh, cool. and lakes. So like largemouth uh, bass yep. and stuff? Yeah, I did a lot of fishing, but uh, I how did much, a lot of fly fishing as How much as better well. is, though, is the take on a popper on a fly rod of a largemouth bass, you know? It's fun. Um, but I also like topwater baits, yeah. you know, with a, a casting rod and a casting reel and yeah. like spinning tackle. I like a lot of different fishing. But uh, fly fishing is... For people who think fishing's too easy, they no, want like you know, <laughs> no. There's you know okay. This is what you had asked me to say the catch and release thing. So it's kind of like creating a sustainable culture and environment that gets passed on for generations, because there's so much more than just catching the fish. It's that moment in time when you completely block out. You turn your phones off or. Most of the time you're out of range. Mm -hmm. You're with a fishing buddy and you're almost like parallel playing and you're sitting there and you're just, you're just, you focus on a certain riff in the water and you start casting to it and you start figuring out what's going on. And there's just some real beauty in the whole process of it that, uh, to me, it's like shooting an elk with a suction cup at the end of the arrow. <laughs> no, it's and the elk totally different. Off, like I got him. He's <laughs> running <laughs> off like the suction cup arrow that's going <laughs> to drop off and he's going to be unharmed. Um, it's just weird. I have done catch and release before. I just just state that. But when I think about it, when I spend time alone thinking about it, I'm like, why am I doing this? I'm putting a hook through this fucking fish's head. Why don't I just leave that poor fish alone unless I want to eat him? Like I like catching fish and then eating them. Yeah, that's that's my favorite thing to do. So maybe I should just stick to that. Well, maybe. I mean, you know, for me, like trout, it doesn't really eat that well. There's so many other. What doesn't eat well? Trout doesn't. How eat. dare you? It doesn't. Who I are mean, you? Compare compare You're to what's a out chef. There. Yeah, no, it's How true. How can though. you say such a thing? Don't you think there's a method to cook trout perfectly, mm. where it's delicious? I've had trout in restaurants before, and it was I'm not, excellent. I'm not saying it's not delicious, but I am saying that there's so many other fish out there that are better. That I better, and most of the fish I like to eat more r rare and raw, you know, for me, like it's more flavor, but, but the trout for me, I don't know, like at this point, it's like a sacrilege to kill, kill a trout. I mean, I just identify mm. with it, just the whole process, but. Well, trout tastes better than largemouth bass. Oh yeah. And I've released, I've caught and released largemouth bass before. Yeah. 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 Cause they're in a yeah. pond and it's the stagnant water. It's mm -hmm. swampy. You know, yeah. I've tasted them. They're, they're it is weird that, that, you know, that is a, a, a that is a factor. The swampy one, because uh, smallmouth bass I've eaten, it tastes much better. Oh, yeah. I liken it the same thing to my dry age room with that, that concept is that, you know, if you don't have that free-flowing air and that 
kind of that oxygen in mm -hmm. the room, it has an impact on flavor. If you have like a swampy, wet environment, it's going to impact the beef. I think about that all the time. I but use here's that analogy. The monkey wrench in that yeah. theory. Catfish. Catfish is delicious. It's delicious, but if you have a catfish from a pond, it's not, not as, as delicious. It's so not like river delicious. catfish is what you want because it's Probably. flowing water? Prob that I mean, I've, I've had catfish that is just absolutely phenomenal, yeah. but I've also had catfish that was kind Funk. of muddy, you know? Right, yeah. right. And there's different methods that people use to try to get rid of that muddy. Like the, I've, I've seen people soak them in milk. I've, I've heard of people even soaking them in Coca-Cola, which is really weird. Oh, I've never heard that. I've heard yeah. milk. I've heard, you know... Buttermilk breaks mm -hmm. it down a little bit, you know. But then again, if you're going to fry anything with buttermilk and crust, then, you know, you could have cardboard in there. It tastes good, you know. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, right. It's like the spices and the yeah. crosses, which you're eating more than the yeah. actual flavor of the flesh itself. Yeah. Um, last time I entertained fly fish, I haven't done it in years, but last time I entertained it, I was with my family. We were in Montana. We were taking a um, whitewater rafting trip yeah. down the Gallatin River, which yeah. is really fun. Yeah. Uh, but as we're going there, there was all these guys that were fly fishing, and they seemed like the most peaceful people it's in the so world, chill. just casting and and just it's, slowly it's manipulating so this. Yep. And then they were catching these these trout, and then just gently catching them, and then releasing them. Yep. And we have a group of guys that we do this with. We travel all around. There's maybe about like eight to ten of us where we'll go and we'll go on a trip together. And Jimmy Kimmel does this with you. Oh yeah. Oh, he is he is obsessed with fly fishing, you know. We are both like it's just a whole journey. We log the trips. We talk about what was caught. <laughs> you catch your? Uh, do you rather tie your own flies? Um, I've done it, but um, I don't do it now. I mean, with the restaurant the way it is, you know, it's it's I'm always sure. just so been, time consuming. So time consuming, and now they they make such beautiful patterns. But there is maybe the next level, like when I retire, quote unquote. You know, I'll, I'll like delve into. I have like a whole mailbox desk with all like the hackle and the, the everything there but it's just sitting there you know how you talk about how making your own knives is like another level i would imagine that tying your own fly it's the same and then thing. catching like a Can large you imagine, trout you yeah. know it's that whole process the lead up to you have a pattern or it's even just like what are they eating seeing what's getting what's hatching coming off and matching the hatch or mm -hmm. there's some the temperature of the water the water levels, the speed, like the first thing we check before we go on a trip is what are the water levels? What's the, the, the water flow like? Because, you know, if it's going too fast, like the trout are like getting like all the dirt, everything, you know, hitting them in the face, you know. But like there's a certain like level where you look for where it's best for, you know, so it's always like, okay, what are the conditions like? You know, you go through it. So it's like a whole process before like the lead in that. How did you start? Well, I've always loved, you know, fishing like any kind, deep sea, anything as a kid. Like it was my escape since I was a little kid. But um, I think that I always looked at fly fishing as like the higher level. You yeah. know, I always aspired. There was like, like I saw, I remember being um, on the Delaware River and I was at camp and there was a guy just underneath a bridge and he just kind of picked up like 20, 30 yards of line, he just laid it down and I was up at high level and I just saw the fish come up and bite it and I was just like, I was just like, whoa, you know, just like blew me away. And then from that point on, I always wanted to. And then I bought my first fly rod and um, you always remember your, you know, you always remember your first fly rod, I still have it. Um, and, uh, and it just started the obsession there. There's just something about the connection to the fish and the whole thing 
as opposed to just kind of like going on a boat and trolling and waiting for them to strike. Like this is more like hunting. What you're doing is, is like you're trying to find the location of the fish and then you have to place the fly and you have to like let it drift without any drag. And it's like this combination of skill and intuition and hunting, that's the excitement. Whereas just catching and throwing meat in the thing. Okay, I mean, I've done it and I still do it. I like being on the water, but fly fishing is just like this higher level thing. Do you do any kind of fishing with lures other than fly fishing? Do you ever like... Not really. And I can't even like, there's so much social pressure, you know, amongst my group anyway, because they get on me because... All, most of the guys are dry fly. Like Jimmy is like dry fly only. Like even if like no we fish. We should explain dry flies or flies that float on the float surface. Float on the surface. It's like yeah. the epitome of like delicate presentation. And then underneath, you know, you can basically you follow like the life cycle of a, an insect. So in, the eggs go to the bottom and then it, the larva comes up and it kind of floats to the surface and then it pops open and it flies away. Most of the fish eat all the food that's subsurface, so before it even gets to the surface. So their eyes are like straight down. When the conditions are right, the trout are looking up because the hatch happens. So that's when all the bugs are coming up. And the take, so you see the fish, and it's more dramatic. Jimmy is like straight up like dry fly fisherman. Like even if like, and it all comes from like one of our mentors in this is Huey Lewis. Like he's part Huey of- Huey Lewis in the news? Yes. He's one really? of- Really? Like he is like one of like, he's one of our group. Hip to be square, yep. Huey Lewis? 100%. He is, lives in Montana and he is like, we talk about every year fishing on the bitter root for the swallow hatch, which is a certain kind of almost like a salmon fly. It's very large. Mm. And when these things come up and, and hatch, like- fish are huge and they're hitting and jumping out of the water it's very dramatic so wow yeah and does everybody catch and release or does any do you everybody. ever run into people that catch them and cook them not in our group it's very know. looked down upon huge <laughs> you would never i mean even me like i'll like they they tease me because if they're not biting on the flies like i'll drop a bead head which is like underneath the fly mm -hmm. and so it's like kind of like they call it like bobber fishing you're cheating cheating so it's not it's like they call it down and dirty oh. as opposed to you know on the surface that's so silly yeah yeah isn't it crazy sometimes i, I just want to see a fish at the end but. listen there's bow hunters you know i bow hunt and there's bow hunters that also rifle hunt and then there's bow hunters that look at rifle hunters like it's like legalized poaching yep like what are you doing yep. you're using a rifle same on an thing. animal same yeah. thing but then there's other people that have a really good ethical argument for that like hey if I am at 200 yards and I see an elk kill. or a deer and I squeeze that trigger, that is a dead animal 100% of the yep. time. It's a huge responsibility. Not, not 100%, it's not even 100%, but it's very high 90s. Yeah. Yeah. That's a huge responsibility for the animal. I mean, you know, you want the animal just to, mm -hmm. you know, not suffer. Well, it's yeah. also, there's something about the difficulty factor of bow hunting. It's very effective when the arrow hits the animal. It's, the animals die like... They could die as quick, if not quicker, than a yeah. rifle with a well-placed arrow because they bleed so quickly. Yeah. It goes through the vitals, and they're mm -hmm. done in seconds. But it's harder to do, and it requires an immense amount of discipline and dedication. And I'm sure fly fishing requires some, but with bow hunting, you literally have to practice every day. Yeah. I mean, you think you saw in the back. I have a archery range in the garage back there 
where you see there's a 45 yard range, yeah. and I shoot arrows every day. I love it. I have a day. I have a bow too. Like I, what I've kind never of bow gone you hunting. Have? A PSC. I, oh, I, I have a PSC. Yeah, it's beautiful. Yeah. It's a great bow. I went down with my friend Glenn Jonas. He like took me down. He's he's like hunter. He's like, this is what you get, and I got it. And I don't get enough practice in. I've never gone hunting with it, so you know. Yeah, it's not something I recommend. When when I have I, I have wanted friends, to though. I mean I. I you know, I have friends that want to do it. They're like, I want to go bow hunting with you. I'm like, no, you don't. Yeah. If you did, you'd be out there practicing every day. Like yeah. it's 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 a thing that once you once you realize what's at stake, how difficult it is to do, how much respect you have to have for the the art of archery, and how much how much effort has to be put into the discipline. Most people don't want to do that. Yeah. I'm like, if you really want to hunt your own meat, and this is one of the things that's come up during this pandemic, because people are really scared about the food supply, and they're they're scared about not having food in their home mm -hmm. that they can rely upon. And also, before that, there was this whole thing about gathering organic meat. Like, people were worried about the source of the meat. They were worried about animals that weren't treated correctly and factory farming and all those all the different things that people should be concerned about. And the ultimate solution to that is get an animal that's in the wild. Yeah. That this is the way this way this animal's been living the way they've been living for hundreds of thousands of years, and you just you you stealthily make your way through their world, get yourself into a position, and then through hard work and dedication and understanding and t take an animal ethically. Yep. I'm with you on that. Yeah. I think it's great. I mean, and also I love that, you you know, the responsibility you take for it. You know, it's it's like, you know, some people don't understand hunting. They think it's just a bunch of yahoos going out there. And some maybe are. But, you know, the people that I know that take it seriously, you know, take a huge responsibility with it. And The people know. that I know that do it, that take a huge responsibility, they're some of the best people I've ever met in my right. life. And the most dedicated. And the kind of hunting that I do, which is Western mountain elk hunting. Yeah requires physical fitness it oh, requires yeah. incredible stamina because you're you're going gaining and losing thousands of feet of, el of elevation in a day you, you might trek 15 20 miles every day i mean you have to be fit and you have to be ready and then you have to be able to keep your nerves yeah and, and the then moment that of final truth. moment yeah you know it's it's like yeah you, you know. could hunt for 10 days for one moment so you're you're hunting for ten days for fifteen seconds. That's it's profound. Like the build yeah. up, it's amazing. You know. Yeah, you got to keep your shit together. Yeah, my God. It's it's hard, and there's no catch and release. Yep. No catch and release in bow hunting. Yeah. But when I sit down the, and I the feed code my family, is the same. The code, though, if you really look at it, it's. I mean, if you just focus on the catch and release or whatever, but there's a code to it. I mean, you get it. You know, I. I I believe in that. Yeah, the code, the difference between bow hunting and regular hunting versus regular fishing and fly But fishing. even just reg regular hunting, you know, and bow hunting, I'm just saying you, you're hunting with guys yes. that, that you know, have an ethical responsibility, mm -hmm. understand the environment, you yeah. know, and follow the rules. And I think that, you know, yeah, that's amazing. Well, it's also the, the thing to consider is there's millions, in, in fact, billions of dollars every year that go into wildlife habitat, um, go into preservation, um, all the different people that work uh, as game wardens are all paid by this. And this is all money that's taken from hunting licenses, a percent, the Pickman Robertson Act. They they take a, a certain percentage of uh, I think it's ten percent of all the proceeds from ammunition sales, licenses, uh, equipment. All that stuff goes to preservation, and it goes. It actually is the the number one 
the source, the number one source of for economics in, in terms of um, financial, this the like the 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 amount of resources that go to managing these areas and keeping these animals healthy and monitoring them and monitoring their populations and even reintroducing different animals like Rocky Mountain sheep and all these different animals that elk that get introduced into all these different places. All that money comes from hunting. And it's it's crazy to think that at one point in time, most of the animals in North America that we hunt on a regular basis were on the verge of extinction, yeah. including white-tailed deer. Which is crazy to think if you live it's in a crazy. place that has white-tailed deer because yeah. there's so many of yeah. them, it's insane. But there's more white-tailed deer today than they were when Columbus landed. It's really, really weird. Yeah. And this is a, an incredible system, the wildlife management system that's in place in North America, including the management of public lands and the access to public lands, is a truly special place. It's, it's, it's truly special here in North America, and that is because of the people that love hunting and love these wild areas. Yeah, it makes sense. I mean, I love it. The sustainability factor is everything. And I, mean, I think that's also why the catch and release thing. I mean, if everybody kept everything that they caught, there's just not enough right. like in that environment to No, I understand. Pull, you know? And people say that about hunting, too, that if everybody went out and hunted, you would, you, there wouldn't be animals left, which is really true. So, But- Everyone's not going to do yeah. it. That's like saying if everybody became a marathon runner, the yeah. streets would be filled. <laughs> yeah, but then you're not going to. Yeah, that's it's not appealing to yeah. a lot of people. Yeah. You know, everyone's not going to do it, and it's very difficult. And especially the stuff that I like to do, it's just very. Di you can do it. Yeah, a lot of people do it, but not nearly as many as go to the supermarket. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, when you get your meat, do you have a specific rancher that you use? Or you know, how? it's a great question, and it's. You know, everything is a process and it's part of the process. So just kind of like aging the meat and then putting it on the plate. But there's a whole backstory to this. Um, I've developed a relationship. Uh, one of my closest friends and, and my mentor in beef is this guy by the name of John Tarpoff. And, um, you know, he's he picks out the cattle and and then it goes through the system and, you know, they audit the system. And he I knew him before he came on board with Nyman Ranch. So. Um, I knew him when he had his own slaughterhouse in, um, in Granite City, Illinois. And um, I met him through the guys, through Master Purveyors. And then he became, I guess, the VP of beef uh, in Nyman Ranch. And so I invest most of my focus with him, and he's taught me. So he's picking out a lot of my cattle. And that gets it's, it's done through family farms, all antibiotic-free, steroid-free, um, raised ethically. Um, animals die with uh, with dignity. They're not like cattle prodded and, and pushed along. I mean, there's how this, do they die? Well, um, most of them. Well, all of them. It's it's basically it's like a like a pin. You know, it's like a, a bolt. It's like a stun bolt. Um, and then like no country for old men. That thing. Exactly. Yeah. That's exactly how it's done. But it's done in a certain system. Temple Grandin transformed the entire system of uh, of abattoirs in in this country. Um, she's. Do you know about Temple Grandin? No. Oh, such an interesting woman. Um, autistic, but she actually is like the cattle whisperer, and um, she can go into um, the environment and she can see just like a shadow of light going onto the floor, and all of a sudden the cattle will see it and they'll stop and it builds all the stress. And as a result, the stress creates, you know, fear and worry in the animal. Why are they afraid of light? It just can be something normal. I mean, if they walk 
clockwise as opposed to counterclockwise in the circle. Um, and all these things have an impact. She's written several books on it. They did a whole series on her, like a great movie, I think, on HBO. Claire Danes played her. Um, mm. And... Uh, but she'll like literally crawl through the abattoir before to understand all the angles and advise, you know, so the animals don't get super stressed. A stressed animal has an impact on the quality of the beef. And also, you know, you don't want to torture anything. Sure. I mean, you know, there's a responsibility behind, you know, eating meat, I think. Um, so, you know, for me, it starts not only with the family farms that they're raising the cattle, um, the feed that they're finishing the cattle on. And then how they're transported, you know, and then how they go through the system in terms of the abattoir storage and then come to me. I like to um, receive a majority of my be beef in combos, which means it never sees the inside of a cryovac bag, the plastic bags. Um, for me, um, dry aging that way is also, um, it preserves a lot of the natural, good, friendly um, bacteria that's on the meat as opposed to like putting it in a bag and then they put steam to like, you know, almost sterilize the meat and they put it along. And so there's all these different flavors that are gathered. But, you know, I think from like John Tarboff and Nyman Ranch, you know, they really have been my go-to nowadays. But it's like John and his sons, you know, they really have educated me on beef and 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 give me a lot of pride. And, you know, there is a genetic factor for tenderness in beef. I mean, I didn't realize this, but, you know, it's not just, oh, that one's really nicely marbled. But it's not like you have to look at the grain of the beef. So like we, you're looking at the eye. It's not only just the fat. It's like how the fat is dispersed. And, um, and that has a huge impact also on stress. I mean, you can look at a piece of meat and they, sometimes they'll call it, they'll be rejected. We call it a dark cutter. The meat comes almost like dark, deep, like almost like burgundy red. And when the animal's like that, the, and I've tasted it, you know, just because I was curious, but the quality of the beef is just just because of stress, the adrenaline goes through the animal and taints and, and the meat. And that's what makes it dark like that? That's yeah, from stress? Yeah, taints the meat. But what about grass-fed beef? Grass-fed beef, I don't, you know, it's, it's a great question. You know, for me, I don't look at grass-fed versus grain-fed. I look at nutrition, okay? So just because something's grass-fed, I think sometimes the animals themselves, it's, it's more stressful to eat grass that is not nutrient-rich. Um, so I believe in grass-fed with responsible grass farmers, that are then allowing the cattle, you know, to do grass-fed right, which I've experienced over in, uh, in Ireland, Scotland, and in, in England, is it's literally, um, it's about the nutrition. So, I mean, you go out and you say, okay, this animal is grass-fed, and you taste the meat, it's like, this meat is horrible, as opposed to another grass-fed, and like, this is great, so it's not like absolute. So for me, it's really more about the nutrition, like how healthy can you maintain the animal? I'm not talking about like force feeding the animal, but I think the right, the right characteristics of beef that you and I love really come from grain-finished beef um, as a mainstay. But you can find some grass-fed that's competitive with that, but it's, it's hard to find. The, the argument about grass-fed beef is uh, primarily a taste if you prefer it. Uh, and I do a lot of times, but also uh, health, that it's healthier for you. The, the, the uh, essential fatty acids of a grass-fed cow are different. That's true. Um, uh, but, but again, you know, it depends on how you look at steak. You know, look, if you're, you're an everyday beef eater, you know, I think that, that that conversation is completely valid. But if you're someone who looks at, 
you know, steak as an extravagance or, or something that is, you know, um, almost a celebration to enjoy. Grain, you know, grain finished beef is, it's like butter. I mean, there's no, the taste itself, it's deep, it's rich. Remember we were talking earlier about like Wagyu cattle or, you know, it's, everything has its place. Mm -hmm. But, you know, for that steakhouse experience, I would never want a grass-fed steak for like that broiler steak, which is cooked on like that for me, it's like a really treat. It's a real treat. It's, it's something like you can't get the, like, I like black Angus or Angus Hereford cross. Um, that's the, that's the cattle that for me brings Americana on the plate. Yeah. Bourdain felt the same way. He was not interested in grass fed beef yeah. the same way I am. <laughs> yeah. He, but he there's was, different levels yeah. of grass fed. Yeah. I mean, I've had grass fed and again, it could, rival any grain fed like over in scotland and ireland i mean you look at their grass it's so nutrient rich mm -hmm. um over here it's a different story especially here right because it's dry and then oh, yeah. enough water over there it's rainy every day so. rainy it's green it's it's right. constantly the rich. cattle is like yeah. they're growing their own they substitute you know they supplement barley that they grow on the estate you know the whole thing is just it works so like this whole concept of like saying grass-fed versus grain-fed I think that there's there's another story, and that for me is really the nutrition of the animal. But I do agree with you there. There is the concept of you know healthy nutrition that you'll you'll find higher you know higher traits of that. But I'm not a nutritionist at the end of the day. So, you know, are you aware of the carnivore diet? I am. Yeah. Have you ever messed around with that? Um, yeah. Somewhat. How often do you eat meat yourself? Well, I taste it every day. Um, but to sit down and have a steak, it's, it's a rarity, but I eat a lot of red meat. Like I eat quite often. But you don't sit down and have a steak very often. I can't, I can't, I can't do it you Why? Know? because I taste it all the time. So like uh, to sit there and eat a whole steak, I mean, I, I might eat a half a steak, you know, it's just, I, I have that flavor. It's mm. like, it's a whole for a whole month, I did it. For the month of January, they yeah, call it World Carnivore that. Month. It's I eat mostly ribeyes and elk steak and eggs. What did it do to your mind? I think I got more aggressive. Uh huh. Uh, and and I'm I, I'm kind of joking about that. And maybe it gave me more energy. I don't know. It's different. Something happens. It makes sense to me that if you're a cow, you don't need to be uh, aggressive. Because you're basically just eating grass and, and, and chilling most of the time. Mm -hmm. However, there's bulls. Bulls are very aggressive. Yeah. But so that, I don't know if my analogy makes sense, but if you eat meat and only meat, I really feel like there's some kind of a shift that happens with, I mean, virtually no carbohydrates. I mean, I might have had like a couple of pieces of chili mango, and I think I had a few olives or something like that mm. for the whole month. Right. And I felt great. You would think you would feel like shit. Yeah. I did not feel like shit at all. I felt really good. And I had incredible energy. Um, but I got bored. Yeah. <laughs> I got bored. I get wanted bored to eat other it. things. But there's in, you know, here we are. It's uh, May. And uh, that's a few months ago. But I think sometimes like, hmm, maybe I should get back to that. I mean, it was only five months ago, right? But it, uh, I lost a lot of weight. I got down to, and that's the other thing too. I wonder, like, what are the, whether or not how lean I would get, or whether or not that would level off. But I wound up, I think I wound up losing twelve pounds or yeah. somewhere, somewhere in that range. Yeah. 
You was know, it a lot water water weight though? No, I imagine so. Yeah, because general because you're depleting your glycogen stores. You know, mm-hmm. so at the end of the day, you know, you, you're just like you yeah know, thirsty for that in your in your cells. You know, but it didn't really fuck with my workouts. Huh. You know, I, I thought I worried about that that it was going to mess with my workouts, but I had good energy. Um, but again, I only did it for a month. Uh, I've had friends, my friend Trevor did it for, I think he said he did it for six months, but after a while he felt like he was dropping off. But then I know people that have been doing it for years yeah. and, and they feel great. I lean towards that. I can't do it like a, as a strict, you know, regiment, you know, but, uh, but have you ever tried to do it as a strict regiment? When you say you can't do it as a strict regiment, I have, you know, yeah. I have, um, but not when I have the restaurant in operation because, right. you know, I'm sitting there and, you know, I'm tasting everything, you know, making sure everything's right. And it includes like a pasta. So it could just be like a bite and just messes with you. Oh yeah. Yeah. The, the greatest thing in the world to me is intermittent fasting. You know, for yes. me, it's like, you know, not eat you know, from that period of time and, you know, start eating at like four o'clock in the afternoon. And that for me has always been like a godsend that just, that works. Yeah. That makes a big impact. And especially for people that are struggling with their weight, Yeah, you, you know, it's so easy to just shove things in your face. Yeah. It's so easy just to continue yeah. to eat when you're really not even hungry anymore. Yeah. You're bored. Like for me, the struggle is late at night. You know, when I come home late at night, especially when I was coming home from the comedy store, I just want to fucking eat. You know, I'd want to eat chips yep. or I want to eat some bullshit. Yep. It's always bullshit when yep. you're tired, too. Yep. It's always the, the worst food. Once you get sugar out of your system, you don't crave it. But mm-hmm. once you eat a little bit of sugar, then it's, you constantly crave it. You know, yes. So. Yeah. It's that that devil that there's 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 something evil about sugar. It's, it's ridiculous. It's so devilish. There's something about it. But it's also so great. It is. Like, how can they be, how can those two things coexist? It's crazy. Because, like, an amazing, uh, like, just ice cream with fudge and some whipped cream is so good sometimes. Yeah. But then the feeling that I have afterwards, like, uh, you fucking dummy. Yeah, you Why dummy. did you do this to yourself? Yeah. 100%. <laughs> but, I mean, there's, like, a feeling, like, when you take a spoon uh, of that fudge and ice cream, oh, you put it in, like. Oh, so good. It's like it goes up through your whole body. You I know? know. Your body's so happy for that brief period of time. But then it's just a trick because yeah. then you feel like you it's got poisoned. Trick, 100%. I remember one time I was eating real strict. And then I decided to go off the reservation for a day, and I had a cheeseburger with fries and a giant shake, a big chocolate shake, and my fucking head hurt. Really? I had to lay on the couch, yeah. and uh, my kids were asking me questions like I couldn't even answer. I was like, what are you at? I don't know. What? Who yeah. am I? Where am I? Yeah. It was like my head was in a vice. It was really, it felt like I got drugged. Yeah. I was just like, oh, I had nothing. Because your body's also super sensitive. Yeah. Because you know. Because I wasn't eating like that. Yeah. 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 That's the the dance between delicious and nutritious. Like, what is that? How do you how do you manage that dance? How do you navigate that dance? Um. I'm pretty disciplined. Like, you know, I'll get into. I mean, up into this, like for the past. I mean, I was super into working out. Um. You know, daily, and then. I got so focused on the restaurant, you know, it just was like, I don't have time. I got, I've got to get back to it because I felt so good and so much energy. But in terms of like the dance for me, I'm like just little snippets of tasting good food, like great food, like all day. Um, while you're cooking, while I'm cooking, what is your day like when you get there? Like when do you get there and when do you leave? Well, 
now. Um, well, normally. Just normally, um, I'd get in at, let's say, anywhere from 10, like 10 o'clock, and then could leave as late, you know, typically like 10, 30, 11. So you guys have a lunch crowd? No, it's even no lunch. It's just preparation. Really? It's just dinner. Well, I have barbecue for lunch, and oh. so that's good. So I would, like, sleep there overnight, get it going. I have this amazing chef, Marcus, who's you been sleep with me. there? Yeah, you sleep there because, you know— you know, we we're talking about the temperatures and everything. So there's a certain time when you need to wrap the beef, for example, in in uh, butcher paper. That usually happens at like 4:35 in the morning, and if you don't do it, you know, you miss the window to do it. So I don't like to hold the meat too long. So to get the better quality, you know, you have to write it. At the, a lot of people they'll just make it earlier, put it into the warmer, and it will hold. But you know, I think that there's a huge difference. So you know, we'll wrap it really, really early. So that's that's usually what happens. So you, where do you sleep? Downstairs. You just <laughs> on get the a couch, cot or something? On the couch. on the couch, yeah. Wow. Yeah. And you set the alarm for 4.30 and then yep. you just... Yeah. Oh. It's painful. So you want to be a chef, yeah. huh? Yeah. Well, that's it, you know. <laughs> There's the agony and the ecstasy. Yeah. You know, that's it. But my usual routine, like particularly now, like I'll get in by 10 o'clock. I take a list of what's, you know, going on like for that day, pack out meals, whatever, and yeah, finish like 10, like eight, eight, but anywhere from between eight to 10. That's a long day. It's a long day. I'm feeling it lately. I mean, all like the muscles in my hands, like I don't even know what's going on. That's why I say I have to start training again because I'm like, my transitional movement is slow. I'm like an old man. Like I get out of bed, I'm like, oh, I make the noise. Like mm. it's just been terrible you know well i also imagine this stress is not good for you either and probably not good for your sleep i've been compartmentalizing a lot of what's going on right yeah. now you know that's the only way i'm getting through I, you know i have to be strong for my team um i have to give really strong leadership um i need to inspire them just through example that's the only way because a lot of people they just want to take off and they want to collect unemployment you know yeah. the way it's working now it's they make more money being on unemployment than working it's crazy so, um, yeah, so I have to lead from the front, first one in, first one out. and uh, But I compartmentalize, so the stress is like there. I'm just, again, I'm focused, like, okay, I got to feed the hospital workers. I got to feed St. Joseph. And like, wow, could I come up with something that the neighborhood wants, like, to indulge on, whether it's meatloaf and peas and mashed potatoes or it's fried chicken or it's, you know, chicken with grains, lemon and honey, you know, something like that, so... Well, I can only hope that this is over soon enough and that things will bounce back. No, me too. Um, but you got an amazing restaurant. It's Thank really you. great. I love eating there and I'm I, I can't wait to you. come back there again yeah. and I really hope that it uh that it's a short amount of time. I mean, I don't know when and how. I don't know how it's going to We're we're tough. Restaurant people are tough. Oh, you, you know, have to be. We'll just, just the fucking hours that you put in, man. Do the best that we can. That's all you can do, you know. Well, thanks, brother. Thanks for being thanks here. Thanks so much Appreciate for you. Me. Appreciate and, uh, it. And cool. hopefully next time I see you, it'll be at your restaurant. Yes. All so, right. Okay. Thank you. Thank Bye, you. everybody. Okay. Bye. Oh. Bless you. You did it. Thank you. My pleasure, brother. Oh.